Hello and welcome to this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. We're doing our third, that's right gentlemen, our third director's retrospective. We're probably going to call it a top eight, but because uh, that, that's, that's sort of clickbaity these days. But this time we're going to focus on one of our favorite directors. Of course, we're never going to do a retrospective on a director we dislike. And that is Sir Tom- Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, he's not a sir, of course. He's an American he's filmmaker. Um, no, he, he's knighted. He is, he's knighted in our book, certainly. Um, yeah. And he's one of our favorites, guys. Um, and so before we get into it, uh, you know, as, as usual, we're going to go through our... Um, we're going to list the movies from uh, worst to best. Uh, we're going to have some arguments on the way. We've been teasing this for a couple of weeks now, and I think people are ready to go and wanting to, desperately wanting to hear our thoughts on Paul Thomas Anderson. I actually, in reality, think this is going to be fairly um, poorly listened to because <laughs> of the three guys we've we've done. This uh, Paul Thomas Anderson by far has the smallest box office, but that's okay. Maybe we'll appeal to a, a unique um, part of the film-going community. Um, so, guys, there's a couple things I wanted to run by you beforehand. I think um, in the past two retrospectives, I think they have been great, but I think one thing we've missed out on a little bit is discussing like what we really love about the directors that we focus on. So I'm hoping that we can yes. like actively try to do that this time um, through discussing these movies. We can um, land at, you know, this is, this is what really makes us love Paul Thomas Anderson. I mean, maybe we can even talk about what we don't like as well, but um, I think that's finding opportunities to really let people know why we love him for those who don't necessarily who aren't as familiar with his work uh number two i'd love you guys to um i'd love to know what surprised you assembling this list um i thought specifically that might be a movie like where it landed for you or what you know but it could be a performance i mean it could be anything but i'd love to know kind of what movie surprised you the most um and then maybe what other things surprised you about assembling this list and then i'd also like to know kind of what was what was the hardest film for you guys to place um and when we go through it i want to know kind of which one um, was the most difficult to find and i guess that could also be like you could also identify like a place holder so like well for me it was the third film that was hardest to place because of x reasons um so you know keep that in mind as we go uh and so in general how do how do we guys, how do we want to do this do we want to just sort of start off with our number eights yeah, I think so. And if we have some similarities, we'll discuss that movie. Or if we need to move on to seven, I guess we could do that. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, I mean, for me, like one of the things that surprised me, even just in a general sense of the list, was sort of after my number two, how how big of a gap there really was between two and the rest of his movies. And that's we'll interesting. That. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Because there was yeah. kind of a top four for Fincher, I remember. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which leads Social really Network. Messed up. Gone Girl. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Seven in Fight Club. Why yeah. don't we start the. Do you guys want me to start? Why don't I just start? All right. Okay. Just start. I'll start. Um, my number eight, and this was a hard one to, 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 to for me to place, but my number eight is, in fact, uh, Paul, Tom, Paul Thomas Anderson's first film, Hard Eight, otherwise known as Sydney. That is also my number eight. Uh, my number eight is Inherent Vice. So since both the both you did Hard Eight, let's talk about that a little bit. How many times have you guys seen it? Like, what number viewing was this for you? How long has it been since you've seen the movie? And why is it now all of a sudden placed at number eight? 
So that's it's actually a really good question because it's the one I'd certainly been it's certainly been the longest since I'd seen this movie. Uh, and it's possible this is number two in terms of how many times I've seen it. Maybe three. I don't know how many times I saw it around, you know, whatever, early 2000s or something when I saw this for the first time. And I don't know that I held it in high regard, but, you know, if you guys can imagine, I held it sort of in this, like, category of one of my favorite director's first films. So... Because of that, it had some importance or a, a quality, I guess. Does that make sense? Um, you know, it's net watching it again, like the best way I could describe it and in the simplest way, and I'll get more into it later, but I wonder if you agree, Chapin. It, this movie just sort of exists, you know? There's not really much there to grab onto. There's not much there from a directorial standpoint. There's not much there that from a story standpoint that I really felt engaged with. Um, and, you know, we'll get into some of the others, you know, the six, sevens and uh, in, in comparison to this. But what really put this down at the bottom for me was that, you know, I was watching it. And by the time it was over, I was like, OK, move on. What's next? Like it was just it existed. That was it for me. Well, I one of the things I, I love about. PTA is, I feel like he's an ambitious filmmaker. He's someone who has big ideas and likes pursuing big ideas in films. And I feel like this film and his, the, the, what will be my seventh film um, have the sort of the smallest um, ambitions, to, for lack of a better word. You know, they don't, they're not trying to tell a huge story. They're not really talking about big, meaningful ideas. But why ideas. is that in, inherently wrong? I, I, I don't think it's wrong. I, I, I was going to, before you asked that, I, I don't think it's a, it's bad. I think we've, especially in 2018, we identified a lot of films that were smaller and with their ideas that were still really lovely to watch. I don't think it's bad. I actually like this film, and I think it speaks to PTA's you know uh, bravado as a director. He's in, I mean, even his worst film is still a good one. I just don't think it's very... Um, ambitious, and because of that, I I, I think it, it takes a hit for me. I just I don't know that it it's telling a story that has a lot of substance to it. But I think it's it's well done. Um, it's just a small film that I think it was appropriate for that time. You know, you um, you you hear about the the early nineties, and, and and this film came out, I believe, in ninety six or uh, was probably made yeah, in ninety five. That um. You know, like the, uh, the the independent film uh, scene was kind of burgeoning, and and um, you know, with came Sundance. on the heels of Pulp Fiction with Samuel L. Jackson. One of the reasons he was able to get it made, right, right, right. Um, and and I think it was it was an opportunity for him. I've listened to a couple of interviews with him in preparation for the film or for the podcast, um, and I think he just there, he was talking about how all this money was lying around from these companies from, for, I guess, from cable for some reason, had a bunch of money to make independent films, and he just had the opportunity to do it. And I can understand why you wouldn't, you know, throw all your chips on the table, you know, for a, for your fil- first film. And he clearly had, we, you know, as we know, we know Boogie Nights was, the idea of Boogie Nights was, um, you know, in his back pocket, he had made uh, the Dirk Diggler story as a short um beforehand and so i i don't think it's a bad thing i just for me i i admire his ambition and i don't feel feel like this film is very ambitious well i i would have to disagree with well this is my number seven so i'm not like terribly far off from you guys but lee i definitely have to disagree about 
it not having a sort of signature director on it. And that's what I really like about Hard Eight is you could see you could see Paul Thomas's Thomas's work in sorry. <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, yes, thank you. Paul Thomas Anderson's work in this film. Like there's those moments that are just like there's a the slow motion like a few times. It's like a director that is try, like trying to put his his uh fingerprints on a film and you ca- kind of admire the effort to do it. You can see him behind the camera making decisions in this film. Even though it is a smaller film, it's it's pretty. Uh, I think I think there's like a lot of his touches to it. Where do you think there aren't him I, in I, it? I would point. I mean, I agree. I want to agree with you, Jeremy. I would point to the scene with, funny enough, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I feel like is it's sort he of he steals a, this movie. He <laughs> does, but it's sort of this random. There's, I mean, the the, the scene doesn't have much. Um, relation to the plot of the film, and the film is very focused on the you know the you know progressing the plot. It's a pretty short film, um, and that sort of sta- that that moment stands out as being kind of predicting of what's to come for PTA. I feel like, but that's more of dialogue, right? Like that's more of character development. Yeah, and and look, and that's a lot of what I took away from this movie. And I guess you know, I, I guess I agree to a certain extent that. You know, from a filmmaking standpoint, there are some PTA signatures or what will become PTA signatures throughout this movie. But I looked at it, you know, in that character development aspect. And and that's where I just felt like this movie felt like it was any old movie from the mid-90s. It just had a lot of the same kind of things. And and Sydney in particular, who I felt like in the, you know, even for most of this movie, was a really interesting character. And I loved Philip Baker Hall in the role. But... Ultimately, and we should say, as all our retrospectives are, this is a you know spoiler edition. You know, you find out who he is in kind of this lame sort of uh, you know anticlimactic way about with Samuel L. Jackson saying, "Hey, I know what happened in Atlantic City. You shot you know John's father in the face." But we don't actually learn anything about Sydney. We don't learn you know how he ends up being this kind of you know, uh, staple around casinos. We don't know why he knows so much about the inner workings of casinos and, you know, what actually led him to shoot John's father in the face. I mean, I don't think I, that matters. If you learned all that, then the surprise wouldn't be that interesting. Well, you, but you don't even learn it afterwards though. You, you don't even get that information afterwards. I don't think it's needed. I think you sort of get the sense that this guy regrets this decision and is trying to, uh, remedy the choices he made in life and he doesn't want John to find out and he, like I don't know I none of that bothered me the none of the questions of who he was or why he knows sort, certain things bothered me look and I and I I think you know I I expect so much from PTA and and I I can't be too hard on him for a movie that came uh what 22 years before Phantom Thread but something I remember talking about on the Phantom Thread podcast was how well he kind of sprinkled these little bits and pieces throughout the movie that kind of came all together and led you to the conclusion that that movie had and I felt like Heart 8 was had none of that like you look at the you look at the bit at the beginning where he teaches John this trick at the casino the to earn 
earn points on his rate card, which Jeremy, you and me tried to do yep. when we went to the casino, Didn't which work. You, can't, you can't do it anymore. But uh, and that's a cool little trick. But what does that have to do with anything? How? Do, where does that go? How does? How does then when we flash forward, does John end up, you know, a good gambler or just with money and like successful now? Like, it, there's all these little things that happen that are interesting and cool about Sydney. But they don't ultimately go anywhere. You don't really get a resolution that I was looking for. And and again, maybe my description of saying that this movie just exists and you don't have kind of a signature on it isn't totally accurate. That was sort of just the impression I left with. Like for me, Hard Eight, if I were to make my like perfect film in film school, I think I would have made Hard Eight. Well, yes. <laughs> I, I think... We, <laughs> but, and I would have made know, Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> No, exactly. So it says something about this director. Chapin would have made Alien 3. Um, that he was able to like to show us something as a filmmaker, even back then, that had such a distinct sort of feel to it and, and something so unique. But I don't feel like it was unique. And, and maybe, the, again, I, it's always hard to say. Maybe now it doesn't feel unique. You know, having seen so many more movies and having seen so much more of Paul Thomas Anderson, but that's that's what I mean. Like this just felt like any other, you know, movie in the heist genre or the you know, you know, I don't know, casino genre of the mid '90s. I think it. I think it presented a different look at that life, which I liked. I think. I and I think what what is I think different from. Um, this film from the other two directors is that I actually like this film quite a bit. I think it's, you know, I, I, I don't. I, I think I fall in the middle between you guys. Like it's, it's, um, it's not one. And it was hard for me to like. I had it at seven, and then it went to eight, and I can explain why when we get to seven. But I, I think this film is still pretty good, and it's a great start. And um, I, I, I don't. There's- I d- I Isn't don't agree that like... it's boring. I think it's got. Uh, it's no, got. No, I don't think it's boring. But yeah, it's just. <sighs> it's something distinctly cinematic. Jamie, hey, we're only on number eight here. I know. I'm already, <laughs> already exhausted. Do you guys agree? There's something so distinctly cinematic about it. It's ne- you know that that's what makes it sort of interesting and in what as like filmmakers you you you're drawn to. It's yes, a, the, yes, like he's, I, he, you can tell he's working in the medium he's supposed to work in and that that would not be a good novel or a short story yes. or like anything else. Like he is and, a filmmaker. And I agree with you, Lee. Like there's a lot of similar um, like tropes of the 90s. Like things are like there's a out of work guy and he's mentored and he, someone shows him the ropes and then it ends in a kind of a bloody with with a kind of bloody violent ending like this is a, this is a you know we've seen this narrative many times but the difference i think is that he focuses on the, the, that the focus is really on the characters and and really on the character that you would that you would think would be the least interesting and the least you know the older man the older guy Totally, um, and that he's the best part of the movie. Absolutely, and you see, and else, and in, you see that and until and then, that mystery is solved, it's it's great. Or I shouldn't say it's great, but it's so interesting. I, I just felt so underwhelmed by what he turns out to be. Well, another another trope in it is uh, diners and cigarettes. Oh yeah, yeah. totally. Okay, I, and I also have to make a note though before we move on that I think this is Gwyneth Paltrow's best performance. Really? Wow. Oh yeah. Okay. I do. I think she's actually really good in it. Let's move on to number seven. 
uh, it's my well, turn, I'll go right? first. Well, I'll go first because my I already said it. My number seven is Heart Eight. Okay, and mine's Inherent Vice. Mine too. All right, so we're just swapping our sevens and eights. Yeah, this is a typical. This Which, is it's interesting how often that happens, right? Yeah, and my and and my seven and eight were sort of going back and forth as Chapin. It sounded like yours were too. So, um, I mean, these and uh, in terms of quality, it sounds like these are relatively interchangeable. Yes, totally. Um, you know, for me, so uh, this was my first time seeing Inherent Vice. Um, it was the one PTA movie I had never seen. The one that got and away. I just. I, I just have to say like this, it, the reason it's at number seven ahead of Heart Eight is because I do feel like this has some potential when it comes to, you know, repeated viewings. But ultimately, this movie is just too messy and convoluted that it was relative, somewhat hard to follow and as a result, a bit uninteresting. And I, I think that was a little bit the consensus uh, when this movie came out, despite what it turned out to be relatively positive reviews. Yeah, for sure. I think the biggest problem, A, is it's hard to follow. Even if it was uh, sort of cinematic magic, like we'll talk about with other movies of his, that you honestly, whether you understand them or not, you're sort of glued to them just because it's, as we say, sort of cinematic jerk-off material. This this is just too difficult to wrap your mind around. Um, plot-wise, and especially for something that's um, involving a private investigator where you sort of want that, you want some sort of hook of that plot, uh, it really loses you uh, tonally and uh, structurally. I I watched this, I, yeah, like you were saying, Lee, this was, this was the second time I'd watched the, uh, the film, and it was it's probably the one I've seen the least, and I had watched it the first time and had almost no understanding of what I was watching, and I felt like it was possibly, as you do, you know, more a reflection of the experience while watching it. Like, you know, I, it was like a Friday night, and you know, I was possible that I had a couple drinks while watching it, um, and I kind of did the same thing again while I, when I watched it this time, and <laughs> I, I had the same effect. Like, I couldn't figure out what it was about. Um, I just think the the pieces were a little bit better than um, Hard Eight on this one. I mean, the, the like Joaquin Phoenix is fantastic. I kind of fell in love with Catherine Watterson um, a little bit, and but I mean, I have no idea what this film was about. Really, she was uh, so boring. She is boring, but she's hot. Um, yeah. Okay. Because she took her clothes off. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. You know, <laughs> yeah, that was a good. That was a good part of it. I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, guys, you uh, this will lead us into more on this movie, uh, of course. But um, you guys, I imagine, drew the comparisons here to The Big Lebowski. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, just to go through a couple of the kind of surface level ones, the narrator, of course, um, Joaquin Phoenix's name in this is Doc as opposed to Dude. Uh, you've got a lot of kind of weird, eccentric L.A. characters. You've got fascist police officers. The whole plot is a girl that goes missing. It turns out she just sort of went away on her own. So a lot of um, story things that are, are very similar to The Big Lebowski. But just in terms of an experience, you know, I read this article about these two movies, and it pointed out that Big Lebowski was also not particularly well-received and do particularly well when it came out, but of course now has this ridiculous, obnoxious cult following. And it's interesting, Chapin, that you well, say the two times... it's not obnoxious because it doesn't deserve a cult following. It's obnoxious because of the people who cult follow it. 
Right. It's uh, it's. It I don't sh- want people to think you don't think it's you like that movie. No, people should follow it because it's a great movie. But, Jay, but it's interesting you brought up how you've, you've watched this movie twice, perhaps a bit inebriated. And, you know, the irony is that, like, watching The Big Lebowski inebriated or high or, or you know, kind of involving yourself in the dude's experience is part of the appeal of that movie for people. Right. And I don't know that Inherent Vice has that. Now, it could be because Inherent Vice is like fucking four hours long or whatever the hell it was. Um, hour and uh, two hours and four. 30 minutes or two hours and 40 minutes or something. Um, so, you know, you can't, you know, have that early evening reaction to it or however you want to put it. But I, I wonder is, you know, does, and that's why I said, will this movie change with repeated viewings? Are the, are the pieces entertaining? Cause that's something that people will criticize big Lebowski for that is as fun as it is. And as good as it is that it doesn't quite equal the sum of its parts. I just, uh, but the, at least the Big Lebowski has a good structured plot that you can follow. That's easy to sort of, you know, draw you in. Whereas this is—is is it easy though? I mean, it has a structured plot, but it is all over the place. There's a lot of yeah, moving parts it, that we've seen there's, many times in a good way, though. In a good way. Whereas well, this, that, it's just you can't piece does. it together. But I, that's what I wonder. But I, uh, I think will it come thing, together. The the big thing about the Big Lebowski is it's funny. This film isn't funny. Yeah, it does. Yeah. That's so true. there is a huge difference in mood. That's a great point. Um, this movie is really kind of like dark and moody. I think that that the from what I've read, and I don't haven't read any of his not his work, but Thomas Thomas Pynchon, he, he's I think he's much like the the kind of Raymond Chandler novel that they were trying to capture that the Coens were trying to capture with the Big Lebowski. Thomas Pynchon, like he's got the like like I I forget what they've titled his genre his subgenre but it's like hippie something hippie fiction or hippie crime or whatever whatever it is um I, you know he's he's got he's got a very specific i think language and world that pta was trying to capture here. and i think to me that's the fatal mistake like pta paul paul thomas anderson is interesting enough his ideas are interesting enough on their own and i feel like um I mean, to me, this this film stands out as like amongst his like as a filmmaker who I think, you know, especially when we discuss the difference between the the two other directors we've done, seems to just be getting better with age. This film stands out amongst his newer work as being kind of um, sort of interesting that he made this film when he did. It's a, it's, it's an outlier. It's an outlier, sure. yeah. And I, you know, I think he was trying to capture that this world that I don't really know much about um, and the, the, the sort of the milieu of, the, of his this guy's novels and I don't I don't I don't think that that was the right move so I think this movie was supposed to be funny I don't think that it was either but I agree I agree I think and I think that that's that a big problem the, with it I think the intent was for it to be more humorous than it ended up coming off as um, now to back to PTA here, you know, we talked about, or at least I, you know, didn't really see a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson in Heart Eight uh, in terms of filmmaking. You do a little bit with Inherent Vice, but just the same slow push in over and over and over again with every dialogue scene that was done in one shot. I mean, that got tired and really uninteresting after one or, once or twice. 
but he does it with seemingly every other scene. Yeah, it's weird. It's almost like he kind of lost himself in himself in Inherent Vice. Um, and I think a lot, a big part of that has to do with maybe the fact that he was taking source material and he was trying to use that and be true to that while also putting his style on top of it. And I think somewhere in that translation, he didn't, he no longer became, it became a Paul Thomas Anderson film or didn't become the novel it was. And I think that's where some of the confusion came. Yeah, I mean, when you have good actors, I, I, um, in simplest situations, I love that shot, that slow push in and just let the actors do the work and just throughout the, the entire scene of dialogue, you just get closer and closer and the camera moves so slowly that you don't really notice it's moving. But, and I think that's a, a really cool shot, but he does it so much and I don't remember really picking out anything else that he did that I was like, okay, yeah, here's Paul Thomas Anderson directing this movie. If anything, I felt like here's some guy trying to knock off the Coen brothers. It's interesting. They, I was reading about the film, and they were the way he made it, it seemed like was a lot different than his other films. He seemed very – everybody was saying he was a little bit out of control and insane while making the film, and kind of there was a lot of ex, sort of exploring on set. And, um, I mean, I don't know. I didn't really find that at least the sort of the benefits of that in this film, but it does feel very, I don't know, disjointed in a way. Um, well, there's other films he's made like that. And obviously we'll talk about them. We haven't mentioned it, but that I, I know I've like listened to interviews where he didn't know what he was doing or it was disjointed and he was trying to figure it all out, but it kind of came together. Whereas this one, I don't think came together in the end. Ultimately, no, no. it's interesting. I wonder if, uh, and I mean, we can debate this, but I wonder, uh, I mean, there's certainly some Kubrick in Paul Thomas Anderson. Like, you know, Jeremy, you mentioned it in response to our Eyes Wide Shut podcast about any shoot that takes 400 days. There's no way the vi- director had a, a perfect vision for the whole thing. You know, and I wonder if, if Paul Thomas Anderson has a little bit of that and some of what we see are happy accidents or what maybe is even more likely is that, you know, we respect him so much that we give him credit where credit isn't really due. I think that's part of it, for sure. I mean, we raved about how, you know, uh, amazing Stanley Kubrick is and the vision he had of the story he was telling. And, you know, he just has to make sure everything's perfect. That's why it takes so long. And then you come around and say, no, he had no fucking clue what he was doing. (laughs) It just happened to come out okay. (laughs) Right. You have enough footage. uh, You can, can I guess, put put something together. Yeah. I'm curious what you guys think about... um, and we can bring it up here with Inherent Vice, uh, the importance of Los Angeles to Paul Thomas Anderson. Hmm. I mean, yes. it's a different world from where we grew up in, uh, at least especially you, you and I, Lee, on the East Coast. Uh, and it's so important to him. And you can you can feel that sense in a lot of his movies. And I think it, it sort of formed a lot of who he is as a filmmaker. Yeah, he's, I mean, specifically the Valley, he talks about that very openly, that he grew up in the San Fernando Valley and, I mean, one, or at least Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, um, all take place in the Valley. And in Her- oh, and Hair Vice takes place in L.A., but... Not yeah, but I mean, I'm sure... The Valley. Yeah, I'm sure some of it was as well, but... Um, I think that's great. I mean, I think 
I love that these uh, auteur filmmakers have that place where they're from that they try to capture, specifically in their earlier works, and it's very you feel that it's very much a part of 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 them, and that they find you know both a love for where they grew up, but also they find the kind of um you know this the sort of the 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 personality of the city and the place um and i think you know with pta like he it always comes back to me for to the characters the characters are always the center of his of his films but the the backdrop of where they're from kind of shapes these people and it's not just like a setting it's not just a you know well this could pl- take place anywhere like you really feel like these characters are from this place and understanding where they're from is a really great is a is a really powerful thing. Like I mean, like if you've spent any time in the I guess Manhattan Beach area, where or the you know the sort of just south of LA Beach area where um, where uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character comes from, like you can tell that like you like he seems like a guy that would live in that area. You know, like a kind of a beach yep. bum, um, and it has that feel of being very. It, it almost feels like you travel back into 1970 when you drive through that area, or at least you, it did when I did 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, now it feels yeah. like 1980. Right, 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 right. Um, it, I mean, it's such an oddly specific, unique area, too, that lends itself almost to cinema a little more, not just because that's sort of where the birth of cinema was, I think there's something else about it. And I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I think that's part of what Paul Thomas Anderson tries to get at in his films. I mean, it allows for some freedom too, I think, because Los Angeles and the surrounding areas are so sprawling and there's so many people. And you can probably get away with this to a certain extent with New York too, but New York is so crowded in in that respect. Whereas, you know, you could you could convince anybody that some of these uh, eccentric characters that are created in some of these movies exist in LA and in the Valley and that these things go on, even if maybe they don't. And like you said, Dermot, we don't, we haven't lived there and really we don't know enough about, you know, the, the people that are there enough, but you know, because you have so much to pluck at, you can do so much with it. I think it's, it's a, it's a very, uh, unique opportunity that that area of the country allows and one last question about inherent vice what did you guys think like what did you see as far as uh his style as a filmmaker that worked in this movie i did notice the long the longer shots you know we discussed that a little bit um when was that that we did our long shot I forgot. That was on with Alfonso Cuaron. Oh, Roma. right, right, right. Um, you know, his are not as attention grabbing. Um, I mean, at least some of them aren't. But uh, you know, they kind of just sit with the characters. And I noticed that there's a lot of that, a lot of long takes, and there will be blood, for example. Um, and I think I, I, I liked, I like that. I feel like, um, uh, I mean, editing is not like the first thing I think of when I um, imagine a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Um, but I, I. I do I do admire his ability, especially I think as he's aged, to um, linger on a scene and let his characters exist in that scene. And I think you know there is that you we mentioned that scene where <laughs> Catherine Waterson is, is is naked and they eventually like you mentioned hook up. It. You well, you no you brought it. <laughs> I mentioned her just in general. Then you brought her up. You brought the naked part up. Um, 
and and that scene has so much like tension already um but like holding that one shot especially when you kind of think about like you know these actors in a, in a sort of a precarious situation um it just sort of builds and adds to that to the tension tension that i think is inherent in that scene in inherent vice yeah i i you know always for me when i think of paul thomas anderson it's the longer shots and you know not cutting or holding the camera you know on somebody or tracking shots um steady cam shots like uh, that's what i just kind of picture in my head you know boogie nights obviously comes to mind uh with with certain shots that we've talked about with with that but you know i still see that in inherent vice so like here it, this to me although you know if i had to pick a paul thomas anderson movie to watch over and over again i might sit, pick heart eight over inherent vice but here i just think there's more of what i like about him uh within the fabric of the movie and the and the filmmaking is is paul thomas anderson and that's just kind of what i like his camera work is such a signature and i like that yeah i mean for me that is one huge aspect from for anderson but there's actually another aspect that i think of probably first and foremost when it comes to anderson um and hopefully we can discuss that with our number six picks okay tease lee you're up first punch drunk love punch drunk love is my number six Uh, it's also my number six okay well mine is magnolia Oh, there it is. Well, I should say that I, my I do take a jump here from from seven to six. Um, you know, I I think I'm taking a leap into movies I like much more uh, than Hard Eight and Inherent Vice. L- let's talk about Punch Drunk Love because it's my number five. Okay, okay, Punch Drunk Love. Uh, so I haven't seen this movie in years before. Uh, you know, this retrospective and. I, I watched it with Sarah and I turned to her. I'm like, this is a movie. This movie is about anxiety. Did you guys get that? Um, I don't know that I felt like... It's like a weird, quirky, romantic comedy about anxiety. I th- it's about an anxious character. Yeah, but... The, you know, but I don't know the, that that resonates to the I mean, theme the first, of the movie. The first half of that movie is just constant drum beats and uh, Adam Sandler's character just pacing around running around it's just like it's hard to if you have any sense of anxiety it's almost hard to watch the first half of that movie (laughs) it's a lot coming at you between the colors the music and Adam Sandler's character constantly moving with the steady cam constantly following him yeah, that's a good theory. I mean, I, I don't have a, a counter argument for you here, and I, I guess that's part of the problem I have with this movie. Although I really like it, and I really like Adam Sandler in this movie, I freaking love Luis Guzman in this movie, in his small little role. And I just think there's a lot to kind of enjoy about this movie, which is sort of counter to what you're suggesting, that it's it's a really anxious experience. It um, is, yeah, I think I think the first half of it is a really anxious experience, and then he sort of falls in love, and it becomes this weird, like I said, romantic comedy, which then eases him and then eases you as an audience member. Um, it, it's it's definitely a totally different experience I had watching it than I did like whenever the last time I watched it was. Uh, the first the first time or the last time I watched it, I, I it didn't feel that sort of anxiety that I felt this time around. 
and I I still think it's a I I really enjoyed it, um, but it's this like that that anxiety part was was interesting to me. Uh, this was my surprise. Um, this was my yeah, Chapin. You were telling me you weren't looking forward to this. One. No, and I loved it. I loved watching it this time. I I was so dreading watching this movie and i was like i thought this was going to be the worst one and i really really this was the first time i've seen this movie and i really really first time i've seen this Wait. movie and really enjoyed it that i that is to say not oh, okay. the first time i've seen it um and man i so i i so i uh, I, I loved it i thought it was so I, I, it was the most pleasurable sort of like revisit of this of this ex- experience and I mean, I think I would agree with you a little bit, Jeremy. I mean, I think th- this is a movie that he said is about, you know, a, it's a love story. I think it's about falling in love. And, um, but to me, I, I agree with you. I think, I think this movie under the surface is, uh, absolutely an answer to Magnolia. Like, I think this is a, this is the, this is, um, all of his anxiety of Magnolia it coming out into a movie. Um, and so I agree. I think that that is, uh, I think that that's part of this. Like, um, you you have this character who is, you know, he's almost on the spectrum. I mean, he may be a little bit, uh, like a little uh, Asperger's, I mean, he or has to be. <laughs> um, and so you you see him being manipulated and um, taken advantage of by his sisters, by um, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's company, the the sort of the scheme that the sex line people take uh, make on him. And you're just waiting for him to explode. There's that moment where, you know, the first time he does, he <laughs> he kicks three, you know, breaks three plate glass windows at his sister's house. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that sort of sets the tone and for... Like, what the fuck, yeah, Barry? That <laughs> sort of sets the tone for the rest of the movie where you're waiting for these explosive moments to happen. Um, but yeah, you feel like his... The pressure that he's put on by, by the events around his life. And he's kind of this unassuming nice guy um who you can tell is carrying a lot of tension around um but yeah to me like this is i mean and we're going to get into the whole magnolia thing at some point but like to me i i i watched magnolia and then i watched the film because at some point i was trying to do this in somewhat order and you you know this movie is half the length of magnolia um it's everything is like the opposite of that film and i think you can and i love when you see filmmakers kind of working out the the issues of their professional life in the films that they make. And I, um, to me, I see, I see that here. I, and I, I love what he did with Adam Sandler. Like when I was reading about what he was, what he liked about this film or what, you know, what inspired him to make this film is that he was a big fan of Adam Sandler. And in a way, like we think of PTA as being this like esteemed filmmaker. And it's, it's funny to hear him, you know, Oscar nominated filmmaker talk about how like he loves, the water boy and you know specifically billy madison and um happy gilmore it's like those are the movies i loved at that time and he saw something in adam sandler that ostensibly is really not that different than the characters you see in those movies but he's found a way to like capture that in a very compelling way and in a very emotional way um yeah, that short fuse adam sandler yeah, character and he's happy gilmore yeah he's so good in this film um and I, I don't know. I just, I was just so, I, I was so, once I like saw it in the, in, with, with that angle, 
I, I was suddenly able to like fall in love with this movie in a way that I had not been able to before. So I agree with so much of what you just said, and, and especially with Adam Sandler and you know his quirkiness on the spectrum-ish, whatever you want to call it. Like, I, you know, him walking through the grocery store, <laughs> what am I looking for? What am I looking for? Talk to me, talk to me. Was just, I was laughing out loud at, and I just think so much of that is done so well. But I thought was very telling, though, about your kind of reaction to this movie is, is a bit of what you left out which is the love story, the relationship in this movie. And I think Emily Watson's super sweet, but I couldn't care less about the relationship in this movie. And that was maybe the problem I had with it is that when it got to that point, I sort of started to lose interest. Like I didn't care. Once he went to Hawaii, aside from the kind of hilarious phone conversation he has with her when he gets there, I just didn't feel like it was very interesting anymore. Well, this this is the movie I was sort of referring to when I said that, you know, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, like Stanley Kubrick, didn't know what he was doing, but somehow managed to pull it together. I think there was a lot of um, issues with this film, and I think, at least from what I heard, they they filmed a lot that they never used, and he didn't know where it was going. And, oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, you can see that there. You I mean, there's you so much the, weird stuff that happens with like the car flipping over at the beginning, right? Know? Which I, I wanted to bring up because it's like that had nothing to do with anything that ended up and neither does the piano and neither does the piano other than it sort of ties into the soundtrack yeah um yeah i mean but it somehow all works it's like it's this bizarre arrangement of all these sort of weird things that he puts together it's it's like we took a step in his brain at that point in his life and that's what came out and it, it kind of works and it i mean it really works and and somehow he was able to form this um story and this love story that i think actually i i really enjoyed um lee i think that was without that we wouldn't have any sort of conclusion if he it just was all about well, th- this that's true yeah if it was all about adam sailor's character for through the first half that the movie would become almost unwatchable i think that, i mean i that's true i just didn't care about the relationship you know and i don't i guess that's separate like the relationship needed to be there that was the through line that was the you know that's what gave his character an arc in some way that's so interesting that it that you heard that about the film jeremy cuz i i feel like watching Punch Drunk Love. It felt it felt in many ways like his most deliberate movie. Like I mean, it's it, it's by far his shortest, but also it's it's just like you. I, I don't know. I just felt like I felt like he. It was it, it felt very Kubrickian in the sense that you know it was a little avant garde, but you were really only seeing what he wanted you to see. And I didn't feel like there was a lot of experimentation going on. I mean, you you have a lot of long shots again, like we discuss in this film, but it they were all done in a very different way. Um, well, the issue with this movie is like if you were to actually take a second to think about it, none of it makes sense. Like, why is this guy the way he is? Why would why would she ever be interested in him? Like, like they're like those sisters are like why would he ever even talk to his sisters? Uh, like, there's a lot of stuff that's just it doesn't seem like you be able to wrap your mind around watching it, but somehow through the the use of the music and the color and his filming, it sort of 
becomes this dance that works really well together. Does this movie feel like a short to you guys? I can see that. I can see like, what you're saying by that. It, it even compared it, it to, always compared feels to shorter than it actually it even is. I mean, I don't even mean in the terms of running time. Although obviously, in comparison to Magnolia, it's it's it is quite quite shorter. But I don't know. Like I think about this movie, and like it either feels like a short or a series of shorts. Like you know, there's it's it's not. How long is this movie actually? I don't know. Ninety-five minutes. So, hour and a half. It feels shorter than that. And I think when I think about it, I, you know, leave out some of the intermittent scenes. You know, some of the smaller scenes, like him selling the plungers to the guy and breaking it, and his sisters keep calling, and you know, all of that takes up screen time. But you know, I think about that opening scene when he's kind of by himself in the morning. The car flips over. He gets the piano. Then he meets Emily Watson. Then he makes the sex phone call. Uh, then they start to try to steal from him. Then he goes to Hawaii. Then he solves it. Like, so it just seems like a very tight, disciplined story. And so I always kind of picture it as a short. And yeah, with that music and kind of the uh, color palette change of scene oh, yeah. thing that he does. Like, I don't know. It comes across as somewhat experimental in that way, too. Yeah, and I love that about it. I love that. I love that about this whole. I mean, I, I agree with you, Jeremy. Like, I don't. I think once you dissect this film, which I, I, I don't think you're supposed to. You're not supposed to. You, no. you, you. It, it does fall apart a little bit, but I just I love the sort of the random elements of it, and I feel like it does kind of reflect like being in love and this idea of you know this sort of whirlwind romance, but on from a completely different place than we've ever seen it. Um, and I do, and I think your your point is is interesting about tension. Like this is a guy who is very much about you know is anxious and anxiety, and 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 I think that the the way that that kind of oscillates very quickly to this you know overwhelming sense of love for for Emily Watson's character, and you see you, you know those two emotions are a little bit more linked than we would like care to admit um, you know in real life, and I think he does a great job of connecting them here. Um, but I love the avant-gardeness of this film, and I think, like I said, like I, I, in terms of his entire filmography, which we're discussing here, I feel like it's such a it's such a fresh breath of fresh air in a way. Well, totally. I had to point it's so to much it. lighter than <laughs> even you know, even movies like Boogie Nights, which I won't get too much into. That you know, it, the mood and tone of that movie is is light. It's well, if, dark in comparison to something like Punch Drunk Love, which isn't a light story either. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, like, regardless of tone, if I had to point to one movie to to say to somebody, like, look at this movie to display Paul Thomas Anderson's talent, it would actually be Punch Drunk Love. And the reason is nobody else would be able to pull that movie off. No. I wrote the exact it, same thing. Only PTA it, can get away with this. It really doesn't work. None of it works. But in his hands he makes something enjoyable. How did this movie cost $25 million to me? <laughs> I don't Adam know. Sandler got 20. Yeah. yeah. Well, Adam Sandler brought in all 25 that it made. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting. This is one of the few movies that, well, it didn't make money, but it came close and you owe that all to probably Adam Sandler. Yeah. It's kind of a surprise. It wasn't a bigger hit. I mean, I'm sure he didn't make very much money for, uh, I'm sure Adam Sandler in reality didn't make that much money, but yeah, it's it's interesting to think about. There's a lot of locations, I guess. It's a yeah. great it's a great uh, you know this whole movie almost completely takes place in the valley, and I feel like 
I don't know, Lee, you and I have driven down roads like that looking for a drop off. Yeah, they're so, so ugly. Sure. They're yeah. so, ugly. so ugly. It's like yeah. like all of it. I could have been that car that flipped LA. over at like whatever time of day that was. Yeah, I'm that surprised was, it wasn't that, me. That was you falling yeah. asleep at the wheel. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but that's part of it. Is that that's like the fact that he's showing part of LA that isn't palm trees and Yeah. You know And traffic. The Hollywood <laughs> sign. Okay, well, uh, we already did my top, my number five, which was this. Punch Drunk Love? Yeah. Okay. So my, um, I, I've had oh, a hard go time ahead. going between four and five. I wasn't sure. Was this your hardest one? Is that, you got you to uh, No, you know what? I I don't know if it was my hardest one. Um, two and three were difficult as well. In fact, this is kind of a, a um, log jam here, but my number five is Phantom Thread. Hmm. Ooh, interesting. My number five is Magnolia. All right. So do we want to do this? Do we want to have yeah, the Magnolia let's, conversation? Let's have the Magnolia because we've already mentioned it twice. Okay. Let's start with you, Chapin. Let's hear what... Uh, yeah, this so... has been hinted at for a while now. Okay. So <laughs> I, I, back in the day when we were friends... <laughs> <laughs> uh, when we were, now we're you know, just colleagues, young, yeah, <laughs> colleagues in college, whatever. I, I, I think resented how much, especially you, Lee, loved about this movie, and and I think we've played that up to an extent, just as a joke. And um, I, I very much like see see Magnolia as part of a, a, a series with um, almost famous. I feel like these movies are like the sort of long, emotional, uh, very autobiographical films that two filmmakers we we at least at that time loved made um within about a year of each other um and i and i think we you at the same time i had sort of similar feelings about almost famous as well um but i i rewatched it as part of this retrospective um and rewatched it carefully and i i found the experience very very unpleasant um I don't think this is a movie that's easy to watch. I'm not, I, you know, I often, I, I'm not someone who shies away from movies that are hard to watch. I like a lot of movies that are hard to watch. And as you've pointed out a lot of times, Lee, I make movies that are hard to watch. <laughs> yeah. um, and, but I, it, it wasn't that. It wasn't, um, it wasn't, I don't think it was that part of it. I, I found this film on, you know, with the, at, with my sensors up to be very hard to watch and pleasant to watch. And it didn't move me in the way that uh, I feel like PTA's films have, all the other films have in, in a way. Um, and I think the movie is a is a bit of a mess, and it's far too long. He's even admitted that. And I think there's this trope um, that was especially popular at this time of like you know people colliding. You know these worlds colliding, crash being the sort of the worst example of it. Um, the best picture, best picture winning crash being the worst example of well, it. Well, I mean, people hate that movie now. It's yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, um, and you know, I I recognize the the um, I recognize why people like this film and why you guys why you guys especially like the movie and, and you leave, but I it it, it just I I. I <laughs> I don't know. It, th- I found it. I just found it to be very unpleasant, and um, I I don't know that I don't know that that it works. And I I think I admire that that P, I think this is his, mo- his most autobiographical film. And I feel like in a way, like you kind of gotta shit that movie out at some point. You just gotta get it out of you, and you you have the opportunity to make your you know that movie that defines you. 
and I think this was it, and I think it had a lot to do with his father dying, and there's a lot of good elements in it, but I just did not, I, I, I don't think it reaches the highs that, that you, I would assume, think it does. Well, I have to say, Chapin, that you know we have been hinting at this <laughs> argument for a while, and I'm disappointed. Like, yeah, I, I thought it was going to be your number eight and just rip it. I don't I have like, a lot to argue with here. I mean, you're not wrong in really any capacity. I mean, my biggest critique of this movie, and it's my number four, um, so just one ahead of Phantom Thread at number five. Um, my biggest critique of this movie is kind of you know, these pieces in the story and does the story work? Is there a story? But then I also kind of wonder, does it matter at all? Because for me, and I I actually do find this to be a really uh, enjoyable experience to watch, which has nothing to do with the tone or the subject matter, but like in the most pretentious way possible, this movie as a film nerd is great to watch. Um, It's got such good use of overused music. <laughs> hey, by the way, he uses that music in Heart Eight. Same music. Really? Oh no! In Bo- no, sorry. He uses the Heart Heart Eight music in Boogie Nights. Okay, so, so neither nothing of the to do with those. About. Yeah, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there is a character they mentioned, Jimmy Gator, in Heart Eight. That's in Magnolia. Um, yeah, the the music is overused, but I love it. I love how it works. The camera movements are so obvious, but I love it. The, talk about overusing the push-in. That I mean, this movie. Yeah, no, that's there, all it is. There, this movie is so pretentious. But he's unapologetic about it. Yeah, that's and, what and, makes it work. And that's what I love about it. And I think that's what I've always loved about it. And for a long time, like I had this movie on the top of my best of all time list. And you know, who knows what that means, or you know, what that ever means, or how you even come to that conclusion. But it's. I think it's because I've always enjoyed watching this movie as somebody who loves film and filmmaking because there's just so much he does well here and he's showing off to the mo- to the nth degree and I just think that that for me is great. I think this movie has a great mood to it and the music plays a big part in that and there's enough characters that are interesting. The acting is phenomenal. So all of those Uh-oh. pieces, whether or not they all come together and work, I don't think matters. Okay, well, uh, I know it was a little disappointing, so maybe we'll get into this more. I, I do not think the acting is phenomenal at really? all. Really? I think the acting is bad. I think the older guys are good. I don't um, like Julianne Moore. I hate Julianne Moore in this film. Yes, I, I hate Julianne good. Moore in general, but I hate her specifically in this movie. This movie really solidified my hatred for her. And guess what? I, I actually don't think Tom Cruise is that good in this movie. I think that scene wow. with him. You had him. You listed him as his like best performance. No, I did not. In this no, on the top I would, five. I would never he, have done that. He was, Show me evidence of that. Show There's me a top five where we did top five Tom Cruise performances, and Absolutely you have not. one of the scenes with him in this movie. That's not me. That not on this. Not on this. All, all three of us said the same. Wish, said the same character. I wish Chapin wasn't the one editing this because then we could throw that clip in right now. Yeah, we yep, could throw that, that clip on clip the Mission Impossible podcast. No, 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 no. Um, I, I, I like his, I like his, uh, I like, I think it's what I, what I probably said was I, I do like his, the performative part of that character of, of Frank TJ Mackey, the like suck my dick part of it. Um, I like that. And I think it, it's an interesting, um, uh, it's an interesting sort of dialogue big, about fat Tom Cruise. Yeah, my big fast <laughs> sausage, and uh, but I I think that scene between him and um, uh, his father at the end, oh, I think yeah, is okay. is I think is one of the most overrated and over talked about scenes 
like in film history. I think you don't even see his face for most of that scene. Um, and I don't find it to be very moving. Um, well, this sort of goes into my point that I was going to make earlier about you guys talked about sort of um, aesthetically with the camera, what makes PTA. And for me, one of the biggest things that makes PTA is his reliance on his actors. Uh, and I think he gets some of the best performances out of actors because he cares more about them than a lot of other directors do. Like they're not just that. tools. They're not just tools to him to get to his end product. They determine what the end product is going to be. Um, and I think Magnolia is a perfect example of that. I think Tom Cruise is uh, is great. I'd never seen Tom Cruise like this before. Um. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman, I mean, you could just say it's Philip Seymour Hoffman, but like he gets something out of like Yeah, that small role, yeah. And 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 uh what's his name? Robards, the the Jason, father yeah, Jason there, Robards, Jason yeah. Robards who plays the father, like I mean And John C. Riley. Yeah, John C. Riley. There's some dialogue in there from Robards that you know he didn't make up. Like he's experienced that before. So like I I, I have to give PTA so much credit for how much he cares about his actors and how much he works with them and how much they influence him more than he influences them. Like he, to him, picking the right actors is half the battle. And then from there, he can just sort of take his time and film what they're giving him. And look, I agree. And I, I think that this, I think you're right. Like, I, I mean, and, 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 but this, and this film should be, uh, demonstrably the most, uh, poignant example of that because of how many characters are in it and the sort of the nature of the film. But I, I just, I think, I think what we found in his later career is that he is so good at like the, the really though, like the character studies or like the one, two punch of a, like a double hander to be much more interesting than a film filled with interesting. Well, characters. do you think, do you think it's sort of a cheat to have the, the, sort of Robert Altman-esque lots of characters, lots of storylines, and then you can piece it. You have so much interesting stuff going on. You you don't have to concentrate on sort of one thing. You can piece it together how you want. You have a little bit more freedom. Do you think that's a cheat that he's using here in Magnolia? Or do you think that it's, it's just not working in general? I mean, I think that aspect of it, it makes it hard, makes the movie harder to resonate um, in the end, uh, I think, and he said as much. Like he, he he'd probably cut out one of the storylines. Um, yeah, the the worm storyline is is cut out. Um, I which always one? forget the whole the the storyline with um, basically the guy who killed the guy that John C. Riley finds at, at the beginning. Right. Um, right. I don't. What is that? He's this, he's kind of this goofy looking actor. I forget his name, but he was he was cast in and was the worm. Oh yeah, isn't it Orlando Jones? And Orlando Jones. Yeah, that's who it is. Um, is that what is that? Is that what his name? Orlando Jones. Uh, Orlando Bloom. Uh, not Orlando Bloom. Um, yep, Orlando Jones. Um, yeah, he Pulled was cast as ass. the worm. Um, yeah, I'm impressed. I was gonna be like the guy from the replacements. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, he was cast as the, the, the worm, but you know, it, what I was going to say about that is, and I, and I mentioned it, how I, I kind of don't think it matters. Like it doesn't matter that, uh, uh, you know, John C. Riley 
is connected to that case. And it doesn't matter that Jimmy Gator is Claudia's father and the backstory with that relationship. And um, it doesn't well, it does, really because... even matter totally aside from a pivotal scene, which Chapin, I th- kind of agree with you, gets a, a lot more importance bestowed upon it than it deserves. Almost doesn't matter that Tom Cruise is, is Jason Robard's son. Like that's a pivotal story point in the movie, but that none of that mattered to me in this movie. But isn't like, the whole point is the theme is about how interconnected we all are, and that will make it to matter. Well, then why does he focus so much on the theme of you know uh, strange things happen all the time? To me. Because I think they're, I think they're the same thing. I think like strange things happen because we're more interconnected than we think. Yeah, like they reveal themselves. They, I guess. They, yeah. Yeah. Once you can sort of take a satellite view of it, then it becomes less strange. Yeah, I mean, and that's yes. important to this this movie. Yes, and I think that's true. But again, I'll go back to it. Like Tom, Paul Thomas Anderson takes the most pretentious approach at covering all of that you know and the the raining frogs <laughs> and the characters singing is probably the perfect example of that like you know they're all singing the same song either why before did that never after. bother us before and bothers us now what is I, that it doesn't bother i i mean for someone who I think bother- likes this movie the least i don't uh, neither of those things bother me that much Neither of them bother me at all. I, I again, okay. it's all part of the the picture that I love of this movie. Like I just think, look, you have to. I think you have to accept this movie for what it is, and that is a filmmaker showing off. And this is what I think about when I think about Paul Thomas Anderson and Chapin. You wanted us to highlight the things we love about the director. Yeah. Everything he does in this movie are the things that I love about him. And and I should say that he changes a little bit after Punch Drunk Love. Right, I. Th- uh, I mean, I think kind of, this movie changes him. You think so? Yeah, because I think this movie is. I connect this movie with Boogie Nights more than there will be blood. Right. No, I, I. That's yeah, what I'm yeah. saying. And is that after he makes after this after film, this. it changes with Punch Drunk Love. Yeah, it changes yeah. after it. Cha- oh, see, I think. Well, maybe Punch Drunk Love, but I think this falls in more of the 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 category that I always originally loved about Paul Thomas Anderson, and not that I love it any less, or maybe I do, but. You know, I think there's there's a maturity in both his filmmaking and storytelling that changed um, over time up until last year with Phantom Thread, which just like I said was kind of going back and forth with this movie on my four and five. Um, but you know, like you were asking, like this is what I think about with Paul Thomas Anderson: obvious camera moves, obvious tracking shots overuse of music all these things that you can criticize if it's done poorly but he just does it so well cinematic jerk off material it is it is cinematic jerk off material and i don't know that the story works and i don't know that i'd love so i'm also a sucker for these ensemble pieces that work well like they're hard to pull off and you don't see them very often i i bet it's not like something um studios look for but when you get a good filmmaker doing an ensemble piece uh it's something special and he's the perfect example and i'd love to see him go back to doing something like this again i mean i i I will say that yes i think what we what's interesting and we talked a little bit about this and how it reflects the san fernando valley like i think like this is his most autobiographical film his father was in television his father was guillardi or whatever the, how you ever pronounce that and 
he was like a kind of like a Phil, the, the Philip Baker Hall character. And so he grew up with these people. And you see in a city like L.A. that's got like, you know, 10 million people in it that, you know, all these white people are connected to each other. <laughs> uh, it's right. interesting they cut out the subplot with the black guy, but that's okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, so I, and I think there's something to be said for that for that process, like that he's saying a lot with, with, with the interlying stories. And I'm not saying, you know, and I, you never want to be prescriptive because you know, the filmmaker, the film is what the filmmaker would like it to be. But I, I, I would be interested to see him go back and revisit some of the themes in this. Just like you can see that, that his, the, the death of his father from cancer, like really had an effect on this film, um, especially in the Philip Baker Hall character. And, um, you know, with, uh, what's his name? Um, Jason Ro- Jason Robards and I, I you know I I think those are probably the most moving storylines here um and I, I and I and I don't feel like the other the other storylines like take away from those other ones I just didn't find all, a lot of them as compelling like I really dislike the um John C Riley and Melora Walters um Waters yeah Waters uh sub subplot and I mean I don't know. To me, it was it, it's just the the those it's those emotional highs and like they it was just you know you you have to parse those out in your film a little bit more you know in a way that can, they can be discovered and I think that's what he what he does later in his career and in this it's just they're all out on the table it's just, it's very loud and emotional and it's hard to take that for three hours. I agree. Totally. The running totally. time is, yeah. is too long. Um, oh, I don't even know if it's the the running time is too long. I more agree with that. It, this is a heavy movie. Um, now, uh, the aspect ratio of this movie, it's this, it's it's t- two three nine one. Chapin, what is that? I don't That's know. yeah, anamorphic. Okay, it seems very wide. Like he's got a lot of really wide shots, and I don't know if it's just the way the shots are framed that make it look wider than your average movie. Uh, no, I mean th- that's the same aspect ratio as Punk Truck Love, Boogie Nights, um, and I believe <clears throat> Heart Eight, and There Will Be Blood. They're all shot anamorphically. Um, yeah, because I just uh, this you know some d- distinct shots at the beginning. The the shot on um, when the kids rapping in front of the police car it just seems very wide, and even mm. the straight on shots in the police car of John C. Riley through the windshield um, just seem really wide. So I, I thought it was an interesting there are look. S- there are scenes that seem gratuitous and pointless that like he could have easily cut them out. Like the kid rapping in front of John C. Riley. Like other than that was uh, like sort of an interesting thing for that kid to do. Like really, what did that contribute to the story? Well, it was him supposedly telling him about the worm, which was a whole thing cut out. But wouldn't you think he would cut that out too? Right. Exactly. I don't know. I'd look at it now as kind of like another example of John C. Riley being the good guy and being like, I don't need to hear the, I don't need to hear that word, kid. <laughs> Fini- finish it up without the lip. Yeah. Um, okay. So that was my Magnolia. That was my number four. Which I think you know, you know, I know we've been going back and forth, and I've been threatening a lot of things. Um, I do think <laughs> that's a good place for it to be. That's as low as I would expect. That w- that's as as you'd accept. <laughs> yeah, that's as low as I would accept. As high as I would accept from you, and I think sure. that's a good a good good spot. I actually, it was my number one, but out of fear, I had to move <laughs> it down. 
All right, so your number four, Lee, was Magnolia. Chapin, what's your number four? Also, just sorry, before we move on, Magnolia yeah. remains his most expensive film to date. Yeah, and eventually we're going to get to a movie that's made money. Yeah. Which that we one made money, yet. I think. No, that, uh, where do I have it? I wrote all this stuff down because it's just fascinating how poorly he does. Yeah, <laughs> I guess you're right. Office. You're right. 48 million worldwide, so not really. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're we're going to eventually get to a, a, a shocking number, which I just can't wait to discuss. Okay. We'll get to that later. Um, so we've all done our Chapin. number fives, right? My number five was Phantom Thread, and Jeremy, yours was Magnolia. Mm-hmm. Mine was Punch Drunk was Love. Punch Drunk Love. Okay. Uh, my number four is Boogie Nights. My okay. number four is Phantom Thread. All right, so we've got a couple of those. Shall we discuss? What's your your number four? Oh, film? is Magnolia right? Paul Thomas Thread. Anderson's most recent film, which C made money. Podcast number, yeah. Phantom Thread budget thirty five million, grossed forty four point five million. Woo. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a hit. No, 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 no. That does. That's not a hit. Well, I oh, mean, that's, comparatively that's, speaking, that's they still lost money. I'm just saying that it grossed more than it's than they spent on. Yeah, the but budget. they don't get all that money. I Chapin, <laughs> I know. All right. I'm just saying right. that it's it. The gross dollars that are listed is higher than the budget. Yeah, well, it was for Magnolia, too. But anyways, okay. Phantom Thread. I don't even want to talk about it now. Okay. <laughs> okay, so, guys, we just, just talked about the other this podcast. movie last year. Did you like it more this time around or less? Let's start there. More. We're the same. Uh, I'm going to have to say the same. Okay. I actually liked most of it more. I liked the end quite a bit, quite a bit less. Why actually. is that? Um, you know, I just, I, I actually think it was because I liked the rest of it so much more. Like I, I sort of, we always talked about it, how it was a bit of a leap and, you know, it, it took a bit of a suspension of disbelief of, of some kind to kind of go with the end of this movie and because I was going so much with the rest of it this time around more so than last time I didn't want that ending you know if if that makes sense like I sort of just would have preferred it to continue as it was with Alma being a wise ass and Reynolds being a baby you know <laughs> and this this end kind of meant that they were accepting an end to their power struggle and I didn't want that to happen that's fair that's fair. Um, did it, it, I mean, I didn't even think about that. Like, that didn't even bother me um, as far as, uh, like, total... Hold on one sec. Sorry. I got distracted. I got a, I got a text message about work. Chapin, you continue. Well, before <laughs> I say, I will say one thing that I, I just thought was so good about this movie. And th- this, I think, I think the script here... I don't think we gave enough credit to last time we discussed this movie. There's a line at the beginning where Alma says, if you want to have a staring contest with me, you'll lose, which is, you know, defines essentially the whole movie um, and the power struggle that goes on. But then what's so amazing is that at the end, when he's chewing those mushrooms, they're legitimately having a staring contest. That's true. Yeah, that's a good, really good. That's a really and it's good. Just, it's point. just so smart. And I just, I when I heard that line, I was like, this is amazing. Like this. This is so well written. Like I, I gave so much credit to Paul Thomas Anderson the first time around for his filmmaking here and how he uses his space and you know how he 
develops these characters, but I don't think I gave nearly enough credit to how well this movie is written and how well the story is structured. Yes, uh, I, I completely agree. Um, I, uh, I'd say I think I like this a little bit more the, the second time I, I watched it. I was worried that I was going to dislike it. Uh, I, I was going to like it less because I, I really, I think I was out of the three of us the most enthusiastic about it the first time we talked about it. Um, but no, it, it totally held up. I think it's a gorgeously, a gorgeous film. I think it's a small film, but it, that doesn't keep it from being ambitious um, and and I and I love the the themes he plays with here. He's this. There's this. Uh, you know. I think I, I tried to get Katie to watch this with me again, and she wouldn't. And I'm like, why? And she's like, well, you know, it's all about toxic masculinity. And I'm like, I don't well, really yeah. like Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> and I'm like, that's what she sounds like. Yeah. So then she had to. Well, move last, out. that's what she sounded like when she said she didn't like Al Pacino in my head. So. Um, and so, but I mean, I think that's true, and I think it it, it, it makes the film especially given when it came out like a little more poignant than perhaps it that that, that uh, PTA thought it was going to be like it is about this like guy who you know thinks you know, who's who who's very particular um, and is this genius in in this field but is also just you know thinks of very highly of himself and can't be interrupted during his breakfast and um, you know like I, 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 yeah, he's such a whiny baby. It's he so is. good. He he is, and he's and it's like he, this character is so unexpected. Like you think, like we see films like this, and in many ways, you think that this film lionizes this guy, but you never really do see his genius. I mean, you see a couple of his nice dresses, which are fine, but like yeah, but I how think, do we, we can't really we don't judge know. those. Yeah, right. and I'm, I think most people we're don't just assuming, and yeah. I think PTA doesn't either. He's not a fashionista, but you. You do, I you do fall in love a little bit with the with the the practice of, of fashion design and like creating things and that creative sense and fabrics and it's you, you understand the love for it and you understand um, Vicky Creep's characters a love you know under like uh, uh, sort of embracing of that world and being fascinated with it. Um, but I think what at the end of the day, uh, you know, and, and this goes back to a little bit to our Eyes Wide Shut podcast. I think. Vicky Crapes is on top at the end. Like she's the she's really yeah. the powerful force, um, and she's able to. I mean, and, and what's even more interesting is as a relatively inexperienced actress does the same thing. She's able to rise above. I'm sure what is a very intimidating presence of Daniel Day Lewis, and really has an outstanding performance in this film. And uh, I, I think it's it, the film is more about her than it is about Reynolds Woodcock. What do you, like, talking about his filmography, what do you think attracted PTA to this story? It's just so out of character. That's a good question. I mean, you know, because, I mean, it's not the dresses. It's, and it, I, no. I don't even really think, I, I the mean, power the power struggle, struggle right? Yeah, the power it's struggle. Be the it power has to struggle. be. Um, but, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean that has to be it because everything else kind of falls below that. Like you know Reynolds being this petulant child and Alma being this kind of shy but you know forceful character. And but that all comes back to the power struggle, which it, it is very interesting, Jeremy. That you know he says I like this kind of often used power struggle theme, and this is what he came up with. Um, 
you know, yeah. why, you know, that maybe is even a better question. Why like this why, story? Why, why the backdrop? Yeah, but I mean, why I think it's more familiar than you're letting on. I mean, you, it, you, there's a similar relationship a little bit. I mean, you could you almost there's a similar relationship in There Will Be Blood, and there's almost there's a sim there's also a kind of a similar romance in The Master. I mean, these. But I'm these, looking at the but why this backdrop? That I think is that's the true. Tougher yeah, question. no, that's very that's very true. Um, I, I think he. Uh, he said, I think he said that a lot of the inspiration w- uh, for the film like came from him looking at pictures of Balenciaga, who was this designer. Um, I think he's I Spanish. often catch myself doing that too, just paging through. But you know. but but uh, I think it was a picture of him surrounded by like he was in a black suit, surrounded by those women in those white coats, and like the striking yeah. image of that, and like how. I mean, there there is I think there is some. Uh, there is some sort of connective tissue between filmmaking and fashion. You know, they're like, you know, there's scissors, you know, you're cutting things and you're creating from these big canvases of, 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 of uh, material and you're putting it together into this, you know, final yeah, of one course. work of art. And I, so I think that there's something there. Do you guys think, and maybe I, this is not true or just the impression I got, like it, what's interesting you know, you think of, you know, him looking at the, these pictures and, you know, seeing it and kind of imagining, you know, that on camera. But, like, I, the color palette of this movie is sort of dull, is it not? I mean, it's it's a it's a beautiful film in terms of its cinematography, but... Yeah, no, 100%. It's, it's almost like a muted... Yeah. Uh, so, muted color. Yeah, yeah so you you think, color. like, you know, by that rationale, you know, he'd see these pictures and, and you know, these contrasting images that are sort of you know amazing to look at and they work and just you know want him wanting to put that on screen you'd think he would then take that opportunity and really have it pop but it mm. goes the opposite direction which i think isn't oh, i'm sure is intentional but i want to suggest that maybe it has something to do with this kind of boring life that reynolds lives that can't be interrupted you know um alma may want to bring a pop of color into his life but you know, God forbid anybody ever does that. And I think that's interesting. And there's another aspect that I think kind of ties to that is the fairy tale element of this movie that, you know, Alma is very much trying to achieve this like fairy tale life with him. Um, there's a scene where they're, they go on this, this date and they're kissing in the street and there's this whimsical music playing. And it's like this perfect scenario that she's created and that she's, or that she's achieved but again, we go back to that's not how things function. That's not how it's going to go, and we fall right back into that house that we hardly ever leave, and and right back to those muted colors and this, you know, tri- uh, yeah. these same old things that they keep doing. I would even add on to the muted colors, um, the like Anderson's like flair for cinematography isn't. Not cinematography, but basically, he his camera moves aren't as, they're not as flashy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're, they're not as obvious. They're so. not as flashy. He he tones all that down in this film, and I think that's also very much on purpose. Yeah, they're like, remember the dolly speed from Magnolia? Just cut that. Like we want like a quarter of that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I have a couple questions. 
uh, where is I'd this? Like where discuss. is this for you again, Lee? So this it's my number five, and okay. like I said, like I, I'm even still having a hard time with the fact that I put Magnolia at four and this at five. But then when we were talking with about Magnolia, I was like, okay, this is in the right spot. So these are very close for me. Um, but uh, what is Cyril's motivation, Leslie Manville's character in this movie? I was having a hard time with that. I love her character. I love her involvement in this this uh, you know triangle here of a power struggle. And but you see Reynolds' motivation of wanting to keep everything just so and within his routine. You see Alma trying to break that routine. What is Cyril getting out of this? What is her motivation? I think she just wants to stay close to it. And I, I feel like she she feels like she needs to pull the strings a little like to be able to pull those strings still even like from the background i think that's she like that's what is important to her what do you think chapin yeah i mean there is that moment when she says that she really is fond of alma which makes me think that you know she what the when we the fact that we're hearing that is that she wasn't fond of the i guess the yep. prototype that we see at the beginning um during yep. breakfast where the, these women are kind of they kind of come and go um but i mean they are they are they and she he says this at one point that they are orphans like they are two orphans together and i i feel like she is and this might not get to her motivation but she is like a motherly figure in a way to to daniel day to, to reynolds woodcock like they are you know, she's his brother and they have this, you know, brother sister relationship, but she also takes care of him in a way that I feel is very um, familiar in these type of relationships. You know, you hear these like geniuses who just can't hold their lives together without, you know, that person who's very close to them. And it can often be a sycophantic relationship. Um, and it seems like she actually is very she isn't particularly sycophantic with him. I mean, she takes care of him, but she, when he you know, is going to make a fuss. She very quickly puts, you know, d- extinguishes that. I forget that what is actually happening in the scene, but she's like, you'll not do that. Or I will, you know, or you'll, you'll yeah, feel sure, my you shut right or, up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, um, I wonder, and, and what's, I don't know, because, you know, her saying she's very fond of Alma sort of is contrary to this theory, but, you know, you mentioned that they, they are orphans. And I, I think, she looks at it like, okay, if I don't, if I don't showcase some sort of a power here, then I, then what is my purpose here? I, and, and what else do I have? Like she could very easily just be tossed out and have nowhere, nothing, you know, nowhere to go with nothing to do. So she has to kind of overstate her, her power play, uh, in order to make sure that she has a role. Now, and that I, I what what drives me there is you know the whole idea of her getting pushed out by Alma. You know Alma at first that scene where she's knocking on the door and Reynolds won't let her in, and then Cyril just kind of walks past her and goes in. Contrasted later when Cyril says, "All right, Alma, let's go." When he's sick, and she just kind of closes the door on her behind her, and Alma stays. You know the scene I'm talking about. Yeah. So that you know that's Cyril clearly having no real role anymore. And that's what she fears. So, so that was kind of my theory. Like she just has to make sure she's involved. But 
I don't know. I, I question that because of like what you said. She why would she then be fond of Alma when she is theoretically <laughs> pushing her away and kind of rendering her useless? Well, what I think is interesting about that is, I mean, she's uh, Cyril is is positioned very much as like the business manager. She's very much involved in the Woodcock line. Yeah. You know, she's and and I think I feel like she's there. And and what's interesting about this film is that Reynolds is very much. Like, I mean, his life and his work are very much one and the same. They're all they're in the same house. Um, they live and work in the same place. Um, you know, he's he seems to be very focused on his work, and she is as well. And so I think it seems like she's sort of there to keep him on track and keep the business going. Um, and that to me seems like her her motivation is that she. You don't think she has any motivation for any little bit of power? I think she does, but I, I, I don't know. Um, maybe. I, I think Vicky. I think Alma has more. I think she's. Oh, for sure. I mean, the whole the whole movie is about that that power struggle. But I I think Cyril also has felt she has a role to play. She, she to me for years and years before even almost yes been around. absolutely so that, of course uh, she doesn't want to lose that she to me is the most moral of the three characters like she oh, yeah she's kind of the moral center in a way as much as there can be in this film you think Cyril is yes oh that's interesting I don't know that any of them really have a, no. <laughs> a moral fiber <laughs> no. like I, you know but wh- I was disagreeing with you when you said that but then I was like well it's not Alma and it's not Reynolds so who the hell is it yeah, yeah if you had to pick one yeah I don't know it's a, that's a good point all right should we move on to all right number, top threes wow, top threes we're already there there's been very little controversy on this retrospective and I have to say I'm very disappointed so we all have the same top three no, we don't. No. Oh, Chapin's... no. Yeah, somebody's already. Okay. Yep. Chapin's already said one of mine. Okay. Sorry. So go, Chapin, then. What, what's number your surprise? Three. My number three. I already said my surprise was Punch Drunk Love. Um, but we are getting into the category. The, 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 the number two and three were my most difficult to, to, um, to, to work out. And I wrestled with these a lot. So number three is The Master. Um, and that was very hard for me to put it there as opposed to number two. But in the end, um, after having closely reviewed these, I, it had to fall. I thought it was for sure going to be my number two, and it turned out not to be. Uh, number three is the master for me as well. You know, these are, Chapin, like you, number two and three, I have to admit. As, as much as <laughs> it's been clear that four and five were hard for me to rank, I think two and three were the toughest for me to rank. And in fact, in the, the duration of this podcast, I have flipped them and my number three is boogie nights all right well that's two masters and two boogie nights and two boogie nights yeah boogie nights is four for me and three for me what do you guys want to talk about we can talk about the master okay that's my number two so the here's the funny thing about the master. I don't even know if I like this movie, but I love this movie. Yeah, it's well if said. That, well if said. that makes any sense, like as co- as as seemingly idiotic as that sounds, it's yeah. so true. Yeah, <laughs> it's engrossing. The performances are just insane, off the chart. Uh, the cinematography is beautiful. 
it right just from sort the of opening cap- shot. Yeah. Right from the opening shot. It just captivates you in a way that it almost feels like this is why we have movies. Right. Um, the story itself. <laughs> that, that all those people going to see the Avengers would just cringe at that thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the story itself is, is a bit confusing and it's a bit all over the place, but that relationship you somehow understand it even though it makes no sense uh <laughs> like it's, it's a, okay yes yeah, okay so, try to clarify right. this for well, us. well so please. well the, this is the thing and this is going to be difficult because we've we've been i don't know how long we've been going so far but we don't have enough time to discuss the master <laughs> so let let's pick out a couple things about this movie that that we can discuss um well somewhat intelligently and you mentioned the relationship between Joaquin Phoenix um Freddie Quell and Lancaster Dodd played by Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie and I think that's a good place to start I think that is but but before you do the one thing I do want to say is I I totally agree with the love hate relationship with the film I would say before we go into this I think this is the film of his that I understand the least and I think that at least contributes to the reason it dropped the spot for me but anyway sorry continue um Yes, so this relationship between these two characters is the center of this movie. Um, you know, th- of course, when this movie came out, there was the idea that maybe this was a a movie about Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard, and it's not really. I don't really think it has anything to do with that, aside from the fact that there's this, this faux religion. Um, this He's making it all up. Can't you see that? Yeah, thanks, Jesse Plemons. Um who is perfectly cast as Philip Seymour? Yeah, and actually, his character <laughs> yeah, couldn't gain that I, weight beforehand. Is yeah. is a big kind of piece of this because you know I I had a couple I, I just I don't know if they're theories or just thoughts on on this relationship between Lancaster Dodd and Freddie Quell. Like, so is Lancaster Dodd gay? Does he love Freddie, or is it a, a fatherly love? Like he loves him like a son. You know that kind of sort of he never had, which I is think sort he just of likes proven. The booze he makes. Well, okay, I, <laughs> is that all? This we're <laughs> thinking way too much about this movie. Yeah, you overthought it. Um, you know, I think the idea that it's like he loves him like a son is sort of proven by the fact that Jesse Plemons is so distant and disapproving of his father and just is sort of there. So now he has Freddie who is loyal to a fault to him. Freddie could care less about the fucking religion. <laughs> but he will protect master and so on and so forth and i so i think there's some things to toss around and you know but you got them rolling around on the ground and hugging with each other and you know you have him crying later at the end when he s- sees him again and he's singing <laughs> but he's singing like a lullaby to him like uh, <laughs> just talking about this movie like it makes zero sense <laughs> we're all over the map and that's because this movie is all over the map see I, so let's let's try to like focus in I'm on trying. what works. that's what i thought i was doing <laughs> <laughs> i don't think this movie is as confusing and as all over the place as you guys are suggesting though uh, we're not story-wise but just it in it's terms got a lot of, of themes describing yeah. it yeah okay i tried to focus in on it and i launched into like a bunch of different theories but right. the relationship the, how does yeah. it work and the what do you guys take the away performances there's two powerhouse performances we talked about this last week on oh yeah so yeah. we can finally answer yeah. this question Two powerhouse performances like i mean these you uh, you know you've seen you've it was seen, my number one what yeah the performances uh, uh, of which perform- was better like uh 
Philip Seymour Hoffman, right, Joaquin right. Phoenix. Right, and, and, and you have, like, I think a, an incredible a character like we've we've hardly seen or maybe never seen in Freddie Quill and this kind of powerhouse bravado man in Lancaster Dodd who then we see kind of uh, dissolving in, in places as well. Um, I mean, I think like it's so rare to have um, such two such interesting and sort of diametrically opposed characters in a, in one film. Um, I mean, even There Will Be Blood, I think, is a different, like a better, probably a, a more interesting character overall. But to have, it doesn't have, you know, there's there's not two of them, you know? Um, yeah. And I think that that's really significant about this one. And I think that's important, too, because I've, I've read things about this, and, and I think this is a theory that I am inclined to agree with, that they are versions of each other or past versions of each other, if you want to go to that extent with the kind of uh, religious uh, theories that this movie uh, creates, that, you know, is is Freddy, or does, does Dodd think of Freddy as his past self? You know, that, you know, he's let go of the negative parts of his life and everything about Freddy's life is negative. And you kind of contrast these two characters next to each other, and there's clearly a connection for some inexplicable reason. And we don't know why. We don't know where they've met before. They insist that they have. And I I always think that this is an interesting theory, and I hate the idea of this movie kind of admitting the non-realistic aspect of it. It's the only thing that makes sense. Right? But But it makes it that much more fascinating. Wait, what do you mean? What's the only thing that makes sense? That like why they why they end up having a relationship is because they had a past relationship in a different life. There's no reason for Phil Seymour Hoffman to take him in as he does and and continue to care for him over the years. Right, and so that does go back to the religion because the, doesn't he talk about that? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. They even says at the in the end scene what they. Uh, I forget what it was, but there was something yeah, he said that he they figured used it out. to work together. Yeah. yeah, but then he also says that if we see each other again, we'll be mortal enemies or something. <laughs> I didn't understand. And and we'll talk about it with another movie. But here's another movie that was very stunning to watch and engaging throughout the whole thing, but I think shrinks at the end when it should expand. It's just two people in a room. I mean, yes, granted, it's the main characters and they're the most important people, but I feel like our ending should have sort of expanded beyond a conversation. Well, the, I mean, the real true ending is him going back to that, to the uh, the woman in the sand that those guys made and that he fucks and or masturbates <laughs> into the <Right>. ocean. <laughs> Man, if nobody knew anything about this movie and just listened to this part <laughs> yeah. of the podcast, well, this is what's interesting like, what is like is I have this? I have notes here, and we've actually covered a lot of it, and like this is probably the most interesting movie to talk about, and I love it. It's my number two, but we we have not made a, any sense. So we made no sense of this movie. We haven't been able to uncover what we like about it, and I just I don't know. I just think this movie maybe is the sum of its parts. You know, when you look at a movie like um, Inherent Vice, where maybe it has some parts, but 
it, it no doesn't some. it no sum. Here, I think you know the parts are hard to define, and the relationships are hard to define, and everything is sort of or clearly uh, a deeper meaning to something. But all when all is said and done, like this movie works as a whole, and. I don't know, maybe that's what we take away from this, that this is maybe his most, you know, know, cohesive is not the right word. I don't know that it's cohesive, but maybe it is. Like, maybe it's a long movie, but it moves pretty swiftly. It covers a lot, but you really don't feel like you're overwhelmed with themes throughout. I mean, a good example of how kind of crazy it is is just the scene where they're at the party and then all of a sudden freddy imagines everyone all the women naked yeah for no reason like i wasn't crazy about that part yeah i didn't like that either yeah it's all of a sudden he decides this is what i'm doing right now i i i mean i have to go i have to disagree with what you were saying i i think this i think the the religion is an important part of the movie i think it is i mean i feel like this movie is more about scientology than it seems to be i mean he looks just like Fucking what's his name? L. Ron um, Hubbard. L. Ron yeah. Hubbard. They're on a boat. It's got a similar theme. I mean, it, it came. Uh, the, 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 you know, the, the timing is similar. I think this movie is like very much about what the fifties. I mean, I were think like. that's the basis. Yeah, but I just don't know that it matters as much as I think we were. I don't. It's, it, I don't. I don't think it's lo- about that. Like we expected, like this, a like lot about biographical. There's a bunch of bullshit in Scientology, and I think it's mentioned here about like man at his, you know, like the man beast, man at his like, you know, sort of most kind of animalistic. And I feel like that's what Joaquin Phoenix is. He just like drinks and jerks off into the surf when he needs to. And, you know, he's just like this. By his cr- ankles, yeah. yeah, he's like just this creature. I mean, he's so, you know, and, yeah. and like he's got these, this strange relationship with like he attacks people whenever he feels like it. He's an animal. He fucks when he feels like it, and um, then and he kind of collapses at the end of it all. It has to be like slapped a, awake, and you know he <laughs> yeah. he he's kind. And I feel like in many ways he's kind of the religion is about conquering that part of you. You know, like it's about conquering your subconscious and these things you can't control. Um, and well, and that's where that theory, I think, almost makes sense. That, I mean, he is the epitome of what they're trying to get rid of in that religion. Right. right. So is is he is he that former self of Lancaster Dodd? And right. that's where the connection is. That's and why they're see, connected to each other. And you see, other. he wants to like. There's part of Lancaster Dodd that wants to be Freddie Quill, right? Wants to be like Freddie Quill. He's like he's yeah. He he's says like, so. He says so, and he's also he he has he cheats on his wife a little bit. We we tell, and she she kind of takes a hold of uh, him. <laughs> <laughs> says it's okay, yeah. yeah. And and and. Uh, Gets him back on track in a way, and, a and he firm grip. Yeah, so she has got she gets a firm grip on him, and and you know he bark. He does. He's not violent or physically threatening, but he he barks out at people like who question him, um, and so there's you can see the sort of the the parallels there. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that was the the best comment we've had about. This. Yeah, look, <laughs> I I loved this movie. I, I I certainly did not expect this to happen because I didn't particularly love this movie when it came out and i was you know but you super did, like, excited there was about it something about it right even the first time i, I saw it i, I was so engaging. disappointed the first time i saw it I, I remember being so disappointed but 
you know, I watched this movie twice in preparation for this podcast. And this is not a short movie, nor is it a simple movie to watch. It's not like one I put no. on, be like, uh, what's on the docket tonight? Yeah. But I was just so, in like, amazed by it. And I wanted to watch it again to get as much out of it as I possibly could. And I'm still not there, but I will have no... Uh, hesitation to watch it again to learn more and more about what's going on here and what he's done here and i just think it's certainly some of his best work and i I think a lot of it has to do with what you're uncovering yeah little by little much to uncover yeah like the next thing i really want to i really want to learn about and like understand what exactly was going on is the scene that's sort of intercut with a few other things but when he's just walking they have him walking back and forth in that exercise touching the wall and the window and kind of describing what he feels you know what is what's happening there granted it's a it's an exercise that's part of the religion but what are we what are we as audience members learning here with this scene I mean, I think and he just like, I think to me, it's always that the religion is bullshit. Like he can't. Could be. Yeah. He just can't get there. I, I for me, that scene, Lee, interesting that you say that is the motorcycle scene, which I, which to me, I like, I like to think of as the end of the movie, even though it's not. When he drives away on it. Yeah. You'd like it to end with him just driving. Well, I, I think that is. You just want to watch that shot of Philip Seymour Hoffman for the rest kind of, of your life. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, I, I'm in love with the way it looks, but I mean, you, you know, it kind of epitomizes to me the movie. Like he, it, it's weird that they get on this bike and just kind of let loose. There's no real explanation for it, but, um, you know, he brings the bike back, gives it to Freddie and then <laughs> just leaves. Yeah. And they're forced to like walk doesn't away. Come, and doesn't it's just, come back for years. Yeah. Um, can I say one thing that I really don't like about this movie? Yes. Amy Adams. I knew I knew yep. that was great. <laughs> Agree. Oh God, she's not I don't good think she's in very good in it. She I think it's bad casting to be honest. She's, I don't know that Amy Adams is very good, period. Maybe, but I don't I think she was too young for it. She just uh, I think it's bad casting. Yeah. Yeah. Who who would have been good in that role? That's a good question. It's it's so hard to recast on the spot. No, I know, but I mean, if you he's got a like a stable of you know very good female. I mean, I like Amy. Julianne Moore might actually work better in that. I know you don't like her, Chapin, but I could see her working in that role. Yeah, I could see her working better. Nicole Kidman could work better. Yeah. Yep. What's the uh, what's the girl's name that he's in love with? Who do you remember? Freddie Quell, the girl that lives in Lynn. Yeah, Lynn, uh, Lynn, Massachusetts. Um, it I just wanted to D. say that part. Yeah, um, Dolores. Dolores, that's what it is. Yeah, it's Dolores. Yep, Dolores. Not Lynn, a lot of people named Dolores anymore. Well, no. If you go to Lynn, I wonder. I wonder where they shot that because yeah, those houses it, didn't look like they're from Lynn. It yeah, looks like way LA. too nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, all right, final final question. So, unless you guys have something else about uh, where was this for you, Jeremy? Uh, this is number. Uh, this is number three. Yeah, my number three as well. Yeah, and my number Lee, two. You're number two. Okay. But guys, we have to do it because we all deferred last week. Right. Philip well, Seymour Jeremy, Hoffman or Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, it's that's easy for me. Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, me really? too. Really? Oh, it's yeah. oh, it's Philip Seymour Hoffman for me. Best really? I, best I've ever seen Philip Seymour Hoffman, and I love oh, Philip Seymour he's Hoffman. Un, he's unreal. But did, watching this again, I'm like. Well, I guess we'll get into it, but there, there was a debate between Joaquin Phoenix and Daniel Day-Lewis Day for me. Hmm. All right. 
Number two for me is the master. All right. Uh, my number two is There Will Be Blood. Oh, for fuck. My number two is Phantom Thread. Interesting. Wow, we're all over the place. I guess we have to talk about There Will Be Blood. Or Boogie Nights. Yeah, let's talk about Boogie Nights because I think There Will Be We've Blood. We've got two of be. those. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Boogie Nights. So Boogie Nights is my number four, just to catch us all up. So uh, way back. Way back. Yeah, <laughs> you, years you, ago. You, you must think this movie's a piece of shit. <laughs> it's my number three. Right, yeah, my number three. But it was almost my number two. It was a tough choice. Well, I mean, it's no, it's no secret. It's going to be my number one. Yes, and Jeremy, you knew that was going to be the case. I think, I would guess. Uh well, here's the thing. Like rewatching all these, the one I didn't rewatch was Boogie Nights because I had seen me, it so me many either, times. Me either. Uh, um, and it's also the one if if you had a gun to my head and they you had to say you know, what one do you want to watch right now or which one can you save? I, I think it would be Boogie Nights. Um, to me, Boogie Nights is more Paul Thomas Anderson than anything else. Yeah, see, Jeremy, I think what I think is really interesting about these retrospectives is, is you always pick that movie for the directors, which I have to admire in a way, I think. What do you mean? You, I mean, you Pulp pick Fiction the, and Fight Club, yeah. Which yeah, are you pick, maybe you the pick, most... The movies that are the most like like what the director is sort of defined like the director is sort of defining movie I would feel like right the easy pick yeah <laughs> you could, yeah you could call it the easy pick but it's also the most to me it's the most enjoyable pick it's like the one that it's I the really funnest movie for sure I wouldn't want to lose um, of Paul Thomas Anderson's films it's the insol- it, uh, in, it's probably yeah. the most like just easily enjoyable film out of all his films. Um, you know, it's four for me, but it's just one that like, there are so many great moments and it feels like it's so fun to watch, you know? And, um, I remember there was one time when I revisited the film and I was like, this is just a Scorsese ripoff. And then I'd seen it again, which is probably the last time I saw it. And I was like, no, yeah. this is a, this is a genius movie. And it's not, you know, aesthetically it might be a Scorsese ripoff or a Goodfellas right. ripoff, but like, it's it you know it's so much about this like family of people and that is i think you know he sort of stumbled on on a, on an ensemble piece that he tried you know knowingly tried to do in magnolia i think he does it so much better in in boogie nights even though we yep. don't get quite the insight into each of the characters as we do in magnolia it's sick it's such a you, you care so like much you, more about yeah, them, exactly. About well, I, their think, I think the family aspect of it's huge. Yeah. Like, you, it's so interesting to have this sort of like, in a weird way, almost like a like old English like kings and queens, but base it in the porn world. Well, right. They, it's, uh, like like the master and um, and Phantom Thread. The sort of the backdrop is is not quite as important as you would think it would be. Right. Yeah. And, but what's important, and, and, you know, you were saying like you don't get into as much detail about each of the characters as you do in a movie like Magnolia, but that's why it works because as a whole, they need to be together to work. Like you, and in Magnolia, like, like I said, I, it, you know, you could kind of take it or leave it whether or not Jimmy Gator is Claudia's father. You know, we learn a lot about both of those characters and their lives and what they're going through, but it's not really that important. Where, here, Philip Seymour Hoffman is so important to their family. 
William H. Macy is so important to their family and their crew. You don't learn a whole lot about either of those characters. You know Philip Seymour Hoffman's gay. You know William H. Macy's wife has her ass in her cock. And, (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, Heather Graham, like, quit school. And, like, all these little things. Don Cheadle wants to own his own uh, stereo store. And Luis Guzman just wants to be in a porn movie so badly. Another Luis Guzman performance I love. Um, But... It's just little pieces. We don't delve into those characters, you know, uh, full force. Other than Wahlberg and maybe Julianne Moore and Burt Reynolds, maybe not even Burt Reynolds, um, we don't know a ton about them. But all of them together works. And I think that's an ensemble. That's what makes an ensemble work great. Magnolia is just a little bit more like dipping into different stories. It doesn't work maybe as well as an ensemble. Yeah. End of end of discussion. End of thought. No, I mean, yeah, yeah it's it's. I I also think. Sorry to. I mean, I agree with you, and I think to kind of switch gears a little bit. What I what I what I kind of admire about this film beyond the ensemble piece, the ensemble thing works, and it, but it works helps this part of it work even better, which is it's it's kind of about like, um, you know, growing older, but or like the you know the the you know change over time. I mean, sort of epitomized in in the with the porn industry from going from right. film to video, where you yeah. know you uh, don't need as many people around to to make a movie anymore. You know, like they they're on video and you they keep as they say you keep shooting, but there's no need. You know, there do you need a sound guy anymore? You know, porn these days is just like you know you can shoot on your iPhone, and you know there's a lot of. So I've heard. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, you didn't know a lot you know, about like, this. There's, there's, there's a death, you know, there's the sort of the death of the, of, of, you know, this thing that a lot of, you know, that maybe we don't quite have a lot of respect for, but at least these people do of the, the you know, this sort of, you know, art form in a way. Um, and, and the kind of the lives that are around it. And, and I think as the, as they sort of transition into the eighties, you see how uh, the country in a way was transitioning into the eighties. This movie is hilarious, too. It's also hilarious. I mean, the you got the touch scene might be one of the funniest scenes of the 90s. When he's singing that, singing that song and they pan over to, <laughs> to John C. <laughs> Riley dancing. And then after they're talking about his levels and it's which is all that scene is in the Dirk Diggler story, the short that Paul Thomas Anderson did. Oh, it is. Yeah. But. God, this movie is so funny. And lines that shouldn't be funny. Like when he's saying, you know, it's my big dick. I want to shoot fucking now. I also have to just talk about like the use of music in this. I like, you know, I'm a sucker for stuff like this. And like back in college, like Chapin, we used to live together. I like my favorite scene to also also had like pop music in it. But like Paul Thomas Anderson just knows the perfect, time to use certain songs it's like using the beach boys god only uh, knows yeah come on god only knows when william h macy goes in and grabs a gun and then goes and kills himself as the decade begins i mean what song is there god only knows is at the end oh is that not where that god only knows is the scene at the end what is the i forget what they're playing when uh oh whatever that is it's just so great i think actually all that is is just a, a drum beat um but uh, or of course the famous Alfred Molina, oh my God. <laughs> oh, Jesse's yeah. girl, and God. Uh, 
the firecrackers. Like, who came up with, like, all right, we're going to have a little Asian boy in the corner throwing. Look, that's based on a real, that guy is based that's on Cosmo. a real guy. And that's a real, that's a real thing. Yeah, that's that the Johnny amazing. Holmes thing, yeah. It's no, so but the, great. The, the Molina guy is a real guy, too. Yeah, that whole scene is from, like, Johnny Holmes' life. Like, he yeah. got involved in that murder. What do they call it? The Wonderland murder. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, yes, that scene's incredible. We could I think spend a whole what, podcast dissecting that scene. What stands out to me about Boogie Nights is the scenes. Like, they are such great, little great scenes. Like, even yeah. that, and I think I've used it in a podcast clip before, that scene where, at the beginning, where he's fighting with his mother. Like, oh, that's, yeah, yep. That's better than any moment dramatic moment in um, Magnolia and it's such Which, a... It's, you think so? I think the mother's pretty bad. At oh my Maybe god, but he, but Mark Wahlberg's so apart. good it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> He's just like, I'm gonna do something. I'll show you. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and again, it goes back to that like just distinctly LA sort of vibe. I don't know if it's as much there in Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights? It's own. Yeah, it Boogie Nights is, is almost more a, a setting of its own that he creates. No, I feel like the Valley and LA and all that is, is a big part of Boogie Nights. Oh, yeah. And Mark Wahlberg, man. Uh, yeah, like, I mean, he's up there. He's up there for one of the best actors in Paul Thomas Anderson movies, for sure. I don't, know, I don't know that there's movie. very many actors. And not that he's been... Not that he hasn't been good in other things, but I don't know that there's very many actors or actresses out there that that their best work is so much better than everything else they've done. Yeah, that's yeah. an interesting than, point. Than Wahlberg in Boogie Nights. Like, he's good in Three Kings. He's good in a handful of other things. And then there's a, a bunch of movies that he's fine in, and then there's movies that he's terrible in. But this is so much better that then everything else you can't even believe that it's the same actor is that paul thomas anderson or is he capable of that well obviously he's capable of it is but is he just you know oh i think you have to give a lot of credit to anderson yeah for that and even taking the chance to cast him yeah that's true what so i think it was pretty bold what had he done? Had he? Yeah, I mean, I know he hadn't done much. Renaissance but. Man, Basketball Diaries, and that movie Fear were the kind of the three standouts. So not really anything to note. No. Well, Basketball Diaries, he was good in that. I know that, or I at least I think I remember that Leo was supposed to be, right. or he wanted Leo as the main yeah, character. Yeah, and Leo turned it down and did Titanic. I bet he regrets it. Well, I mean, yeah, he did Titanic, so probably not, but... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But but, uh, Leo turned down another Paul Thomas Anderson movie just recently. Which one? Really? I don't know. Whatever PTA's next movie is. I just read an article about this. Leo's doing a movie with uh, Guillermo del Toro, and he had a few options in front of him, and Paul Thomas Anderson's next movie was one of them, and he turned that down. That's too bad. The thing thing about... I'd love to see them work together. The thing about... um, Look, the thing about uh, PTA, like let's compare him to his probably his closest um, comparison is is Tarantino. Like he's kind of a peer. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we he like Tarantino's in love with his idea of like his actors, his like company of actors. But but you you never feel that there's like a miscasting in PTA's movies. Like the discovery hey. that Mark Wahlberg could do what he did in this film. 
and not really doing any other film that he's ever been in is incredible. And the same goes for uh, um, Adam Sandler in uh, Punch Drunk Love. And like, let's not even get started on um, uh, Daniel Day Lewis. Like, it's, and, and it really, I think that like Tarantino is in love with this idea of like, I think he's he he's kind of a star fucker in a way. Like when he can get Brad Pitt and and Leonardo DiCaprio in his movies, like he's he kind of he, he just sees stars. Which I mean, you can't yes really. Yes and blame no, him, but he but also plucks Christoph Waltz out of nowhere. That's true. That is true. But I don't know. Like I, I feel like, I mean, we all know how much you know. Brad Pitt kind of hurt the Bastards movie, and you know, one wonders what it would be like were someone. You know, were that that role properly cast, but like Anderson, I don't think he, I don't think he, he, he ever could, he ever does that. He, he like he was gonna make um, there will be blood with Daniel Day Lewis, and if he wasn't gonna do it, he was he's he was never gonna make the movie. And I know we hear that a lot, but I actually believe it with that film. Like I yeah. mean, one, it's hard to imagine him doing that. And I mean, it, uh, Mark Wahlberg's Mark Wahlberg's <laughs> career compared to. If he couldn't uh, get Wahlberg, he wasn't going to make Boogie Nights. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously not that. But when you compare his career with Leo's, you know, they're obviously, th- th- you know, Leo was obviously the better actor, but I don't think Leo would have been better in this movie. I know it's hard to imagine, but I don't think he would have been better than Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. I just don't. No, definitely not. He doesn't have the, he didn't wouldn't have had the weird sort of. The innocence. Uh, the... Yeah, I wanted to say innocence, but I'm like, does he have innocence? But it is. It's true. It's innocence. It's weird sort of innocence that Mark Wahlberg's able to portray. That's in defined that. by that scene with his mother at the beginning, whether his mother's bad in it or not. And right. the, sort of the analog he finds in Julianne Moore's character. Yes. All right. Let's uh, let's move on and talk about There Will Be Blood because I'm assuming it is your number one. Yes, sir. Yeah. We're it's always so was. spent at the end of these lists that we yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, what the, we got to talk about there will be blood now. <laughs> uh, let's just do it in a different podcast. We'll do a retrospective on one movie. I mean, I, so I mentioned you this. Could, if there's any movie, you could. I mentioned that with Magnolia, that once upon a time, it was sort of topping my list of my favorite movie of all time. And, and I, I, I used to always rank my best movies of all time, at least my top fives and as you guys know, the apartment has always been in that discussion. And, and yeah. in recent years, um, I'm starting to feel like maybe there will be blood is, is my favorite movie of all time. I don't know what that means. I don't know how to, I, how I rank it. And so I don't know if that's actually true, but I didn't get a chance to rewatch this. I knew I didn't need to. I've seen it many times and it may be my favorite movie of all time. So how could it not be my number one Paul Thomas Anderson movie? Yeah, couldn't say it better myself. I mean, I think this might be my favorite movie of all time. So it's definitely in the top five. I mean, thematically, as an as American cinema, um, it it has to rank up there with some of the greats. Like it's 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 about the expansion of America. It's about um, economics. It's about religion. It's about all these sort of things fighting with each other in a in a perfectly formed story and with these characters especially our main character that's so sort of engrossing and at the same time ambitiously evil yeah horrifying in a way yeah like that 
like it's hard nowadays to make something so almost classic but modern and and there will be blood is almost classic cinema made in the last you know whatever 10 years yeah it's amazing with this movie how beautiful it is how great the acting is how good the filmmaking is and i think this is partly speaks to why this may be so high on my list of movies of all time is that it's it's kind of showy but not in a show-offy type of way like everything is appropriate you know like he he uses silence so well at the beginning of the movie which is oddly pretentious but also perfect for this movie and couldn't have it any other way you know the johnny greenwood score is so subtle and understated in this movie and he he for until it's not until it's not but also for a director who you know, is guilty of overusing music in the best possible ways. And I know that doesn't make sense. I keep saying it, but you know, he's so disciplined with it here. And I just think this is him taking all of the tools that he is so good at using and using them so perfectly and shouting them out when he needs to be shouting them out. And that includes with his performances, Daniel Day Lewis yelling when he needs to be yelling, but also, you know, being quiet and controlled in a very evil way when he needs to be quiet and controlled. And I think that's sort of a, a microcosm type example of everything he does in this movie. Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, I, I, what I found, uh, so I think I watched this right around the time, you know, we, we obviously have a big lead up to do these retrospectives cause we have to watch eight movies or whatever, but I, I rewatched this one right around the same time we were we were reviewing us and i've been i left us and i've been experiencing since we reviewed that film a sort of questioning of whether you know is metaphor the right thing to be using in film you know i i, I all the pieces of that of, of us were so good but to me what was really the, the 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 hard thing to grasp with that film was the the metaphor and i admire so much that 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 PTA is is not a filmmaker who is who lives on the surface of things like um, like Tarantino does, where you know you you know you you don't really need to look much much more than what you're being showed. There is a lot of subtlety and there's a lot there's a lot of layers to his work, but he's not a he's not a filmmaker who who I think works in metaphor. And I admire that he goes right to the issues that he's talking about here. I mean, the birth of capitalism and the birth of our sort of our modern economy and cultural obsession with money kind of begins right at the time of, of, of this film. And it's so expertly done with the embodiment of that character in Daniel Plainview. He's like a, he is like the American dream, like in both its worst and best moments, you know, and, um, and the manifestation of it and how it turns out it, it's there. He's saying so much with this movie and I just admire that he doesn't. He's not being you know, overly subtle, right? It's just he, yeah. He attacks it, and it's like this is it. This is where it started. So you might as well make a movie about oil drilling, you know, as it came out of you know the silver industry or this you know silver mining and uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre was a huge influence on this film. And I went back and I watched that film, and you know you see a lot of that in that in, in that as well. Like where this kind of all began is like men in the dirt and. I, I'm glad that he didn't, you know, mince words and try to do something differently and say these things from a different perspective because I think that's where it sort of began. Yeah, I think there's this um, 
idea, especially now, and I, I think especially amongst you know us and our critical peers, I guess, or people who kind of dissect movies a little bit more, there's this idea that you know a, a, a good movie has to be subtly saying something like you brought up with us like we have to look deeper we have to pay closer attention we have to watch it multiple times we talk about it a lot a lot you know that movie annihilation like it wasn't very good but should we see that movie again because it's clearly got a lot to say so we should be giving this movie more credit than it than we are but you're right like paul thomas anderson kind of doesn't shove it in your face doesn't come right out and say it but also doesn't hide what his movies are about and I think it's great that we can watch these movies once or twice and just be like, okay, we got it. Except maybe the master. We need about 20, 20 or 30 more times. But um, maybe that's the problem with the master. Well, I mean, the reason this is number two and not number one. I mean, remember at the beginning I said there's a drop off after my number two? Yep. It's because, like, to me, Boogie Nights and There Will Be Blood are just so much better than the rest of the movies and it's not even to say the rest of the movies are even remotely bad i just think these two are in a class by themselves um but the differences are pretty jarring between boogie nights and there will be blood and not just obviously in the subject matter but also as a filmmaker uh for pta like there will be blood is much although you guys like you said it it, he doesn't try to hide what he's saying but it is much more reserved in its style and especially in its uh dialogue within the screenplay Mm -hmm. like you know boogie nights you you feel pta's sort of presence on the dialogue and the way the characters talk and the way the characters interact and they a lot of those characters have foibles as far as how they talk to each other and maybe talk over each other and there's a little bit of humor there whereas he's much more precise here with there will be blood um and it's more deliberate in what he's trying to uh, present to the audience um the script is much more present in boogie nights in boogie nights yes absolutely uh but not that one's any better than the other i just associate pta more with the present script than the not present script and that's why i I sort of i rank those the way that i do but there will be blood if you just take it on its own is 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 such a sort of american cinema cinematic classic that it's hard to argue with anything you guys are saying the only the only negative I would have for this movie, and I mentioned it same with the master, which was my number three, is I think the ending should have sort of expanded when it contrasted. Yeah, I don't. I I I think the end does bother me a little bit with this movie. Like he, he really could have just done without it. You know, never mind, do something differently. Yeah, um, I didn't need a resolution between Eli Sunday and Daniel Plainview. I didn't need it. Um, I mean, you lose one of the most famous lines ever. Um, sure. But we can't we can't just leave something in for that. Um, also, the title, right? Like, I mean, isn't that kind of the whole point of the title? I mean, the title? could have changed the title, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I mean... But yeah. I'll even go even for, like, basically that whole, even before that with his son. Like, I didn't need that wrap-up either. 
um, when he disowns his son before he meets with Eli again. Um, But the flip side of that is so much of this movie, and we talked a lot about it with Phantom Thread, is a power struggle between Eli Sunday and Daniel Plainview. And we get it. But with this, it's even a power struggle between capitalism and greed and religion. Sure. But if we're looking at what's interesting is we look at Phantom Thread, the, the resolution, I guess, for that power struggle is something that we are swaying on as well. We don't. I don't know how well the end of that worked. I kind of would have just preferred to continue to watch the, the, the struggle, where I think maybe the same could be said about There Will Be Blood. But at times, I, th- I just sort of agree with the idea that you need to have a resolution. And sometimes that's hard. When you make a story so compelling and so good, it's hard to find a way to end it. I don't know. I don't know what the answer would have been. You guys don't think that. You guys don't think that. Um, it had that was a good resolution. I do. I, I love that. That I like how it ended. I, or I like what happens. I but I think I may lean on the side that I would have preferred to just see see it continue to see this. You know. Sure. Sure. Like and, with another guy. I mean, I what I think is interesting is that he. Uh, he, um, he just sort of what you were saying, Jeremy, about the the struggle of capitalism. Like at the end of the day, or the end of the movie, I mean, he's what you get from those two scenes is that he's he's uh, um, basically uh, separated from his from the only person he's ever truly seemed to love, which is his adopted son, and. Uh, he you know murders a bastard in a basket right he murders his um opponent and he's living in this giant mansion like you know the peak of capitalism um and he's not even sleeping in a real bed he's like he's like camped out in the bowling alley and i don't or, think he's camped out yeah, i think he's, he's drunk. passed out yeah. drunk <laughs> no but he's he, you i don't see, think he plans to sleep there <laughs> no he slept there and he had and and he's got a like a little blanket and he's got food and a, a jug of water um and he's like he's i think he's he's the the man we saw at the beginning the silver miner who like i think that's where he wants to be always on the hunt and so when he's won the the thing at the end of the day he uh he hasn't you know he hasn't he still wants to be back where he started i agree i agree that's what and 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 so it's like the pursuit is what's interesting and at the end of the day he has a competition in him he's got a competition and once he's reached the point where he um you know has got what what seems to be the end game there which is all the money in the world and And a bowling alley in your house yeah bowling alley in your house and he's not even sleeping in a real bed he's just um, and he's firing weapons off at, at his house, and it's, it seems like a horrible existence. Yes. It's in a... I mean, I don't know. It's... Uh, this movie is so good, and, like, I don't know, 2007, we've been talking a lot about about 1999, which obviously brought a lot of good movies, but 2007, I mean, I can just stop it. There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Like, two of some of the best movies ever made shot over the hill from each other by right. some of the best directors ever came out this year. And, you know, I don't a lot. The frustrating thing about this um, retrospective is I think 
there's movies that require at least one podcast to talk about with movies like There Will Be Blood and The Master and even, well, Phantom Thread, we had one. Um, and even movies like Boogie Nights, I think we could spend a lot of time really dissecting. And I think that's a testament to Paul Thomas Anderson that he gives you so much to discuss. And at, But at the same time, his movies are so enjoyable to watch. Agreed. Should okay. we give out some awards? Let's give some awards out. Some what are we, these aren't really the fixies, right? They're like, well, we always call them that, I guess. But oh, so like the mid-year fixies, or just for Paul Thomas Anderson movies? Okay. Um, I I got a screen. I got cinematography, screenplay, supporting actress, actor, and then the best actress and actor. That's what I have. Same. Okay. Yeah. So cinematography. Okay. Um. With the exception of two movies, I believe Robert Elswit is nominated here. <laughs> um, but I, There Will Be Blood is my pick. No question about it. Uh, mine's going to the 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 the, uh, the the guy who he's not, who isn't him. Who Mikhail. isn't Robert Elswit? Yeah, I don't know yeah. how to say his name. I don't know how to say his name either. But he shot the master. Yeah, it's beautiful. On sixty-five, Malamiar Jr. Yeah, yeah. who shot some of those? I think he did those, like those, the last couple um, awful Francis Ford Coppola movies. Uh, he's my pick as well for the master. All right, screenplay. When, uh, well, I mean, that's he writes most of his screenplays. Oh yeah, he's the nominee. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which movie? Uh, for me, it is Boogie Nights. Mine too. Phantom Thread for me. Wow. Really? Why? Well, like I said, like I, I was sort of uh, really amazed at how well structured this story was. Like I, that line I mentioned to you, and then how much that plays into the entire story, and then right up to the very end when they're having this leg- uh, literal staring contest with each other, and Alma wins, just as she said. And I just think we didn't give the script enough credit last time around and maybe that's part of the reason but i just think this is a really well written movie um and a really well written power struggle which is something we see a lot in movies but never quite this good well i'm not going to argue with that that's a great great pick uh do you want to defend your at all jeremy i mean i i just Boogie Nights? It's just, like you said. I mean, it's what the, I said earlier. It's like, it, it's, presence, to me, yeah. it's, yeah, it's quintessential PTA. It's his dialogue. It's the ensemble piece of it. Like, it's what I sort of associate with great PTA. Um, it, you know, my second runner-up would have been There Will Be Blood. My third would have been Phantom Thread. Um, but I had to go with Boogie Nights. It's interesting, Chapin, that you, you, you know, sort of dismissed the idea that we've probably all suggested at one time or another of, of Boogie Nights as being a Scorsese ripoff and it has that raging bull monologue at the end which <laughs> is an homage are we calling it an homage <laughs> <laughs> sure <laughs> the same one as the one is that uh, De Niro has before he takes his penis out in Raging Bull Rage, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's why it's called Raging Bull let me call this penis so this bull here can rage <laughs> All right, supporting actress. Oh, that's where we're going to. All right. You guys go first. Leslie Manville, Phantom Thread. <sighs> yeah, oh, that's a great pick. it's a really hard one to argue with, and, and, and this was harder for me to go, and I figured that uh, that it was 
that was going to come up, and I wanted to be a little controversial, and so I went with Emily Watson in Punch Drunk Love. Oh, okay. Oh, she, I had her as a leading actress nominee, but um, I went with your favorite, Julianne Moore, in Boogie Nights. Oh, f- she's okay. She overacts. She's great. Her and Heather Graham are my two nominees <laughs> in that movie. <laughs> That's I, probably... I would have picked Heather Graham. <laughs> wow. All right, supporting actor. Supporting actor. Um, I went with Philip Seymour Hoffman and the Master just because I think that's how they they market it. I mean, if I'm going to do that, that that's going to be my number one too. But I'm going Philip Seymour Hoffman Hoffman in Magnolia. Yeah. So I don't know if this is actually the one, but I mentioned it. It's. a, a tie for two movies that he's in Luis Guzman and punch drunk love and boogie nights. I just love him in these movies when he puts the what? suit on in punch drunk love, really? all those good actors. I know it's ridiculous, but I just, I have to mention him. He's so funny and he's so good did. in boogie nights. You and mentioned him. I know, but I want to mention him again. You guys didn't agree. I. You guys didn't agree with me before and we didn't get, we didn't spend 25 minutes talking about him. So I, I <laughs> put him here. Look, he's great, and sure, I suppose I could have put Tom Cruise from Magnolia. <laughs> <laughs> but but Jeremy's Reynolds. already nominated him for enough, so... Yeah, you on a, on a top five on the Mission Impossible podcast. Go back and listen, everybody. Of all of Tom Cruise's performances, this was Tom Cruise's performance, so, like, uh, yes, I don't think it's such a... If I did do that, I don't think it's... Oh, it's already, already defending it. All right. Uh, okay, actress... I feel like we're all going to be the same here. Well, go ahead, Lee. What do you Vicky think? Vicky Creeps. Yeah. Yep, that's Phantom mine. Thread. Yeah, I did Boring. the same. Was there another option? Yeah. I, I had Emily Watson. Okay. <laughs> that was, so she's deserving, but she didn't have a lot of competition either in the lead, lead actress category. And this seemingly would be simple for best actor, but there's a lot of options here. Yeah, I mean this was this was tough, um, and I, I I want somebody else to go first. Well, so some potential nominees: you have Daniel Day Lewis from There Will Be Blood, you have Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman possibly from the, from the Master. Yeah. You have Mark Wahlberg from Boogie Nights. Mm-hmm. Daniel Day Lewis might be the best performance in the history of cinema. So that's my number one. That's my that's pick. Mine. That's my pick. I'm gonna. I, I it's such a toss up. I'm gonna go Joaquin Phoenix in the Master. Wow, wow. I was blown away Enough by set. him. It's I mean, it is a it is a it it is blown away. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. I mean I I mean it's hard to Daniel, argue. It's almost like we were used to Daniel Day Lewis at this point. Joaquin Phoenix in the Master just surprised me. Yeah. No, it's great. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this special, extraordinarily long retrospective of Paul Thomas Anderson, one of our favorite filmmakers. We hope you've stayed and listened to this whole thing. And if you have, you are a true fan. Um, and we love you for it. And so hopefully we'll be back next week. Guys, do we have any any movies we want to do? Avengers Endgame? I'm seeing that tonight. Oh, for fuck. Thanos wins. Uh, Move on. Spoiler, everybody. Uh, um, 
I don't know that yeah. I have any interest in sitting with a crowd of people watching That's Avengers fine. Endgame I was sort of for just kidding. three we hours. Can, we can do something else. Um, I would like would to ask for one. emails, though, just in general, but for ideas for our next retrospective, so we can begin. Um, oh, another director. Another director. Yeah, maybe an older yeah. director. Yeah, an older one, or maybe really, a dead one. You know, yeah. Any 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 suggestions are are of course welcome. But um, the the problem with older directors is that they have a lot of movies to watch. Yeah, but they would be kind of interesting if we all if we you know we just say pick your top eight, so we have we don't always have crossover. You know, Woody Allen. Jeez. <laughs> Top 100 movies. Yeah. All right. So thank you for listening and good evening. <laughs> what an ending. <laughs> you think one drink, shrink into your arms. Love.